No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And uh, I can't believe it. I have no idea how we're, we're doing it here three weeks in a row. So all those people that were like, "And hey, now you're gonna disappear again." So this is three weeks in a row, and we got a whole bunch more coming down the line. And tonight is gonna be a really good one because, as you might be able to tell, uh, I'm in jam session mode tonight, folks. I don't really have any <laughs> notes or anything because I know I'm gonna be on with a real. Uh, a real talker and a real thinker and someone that we can just bounce ideas off of each other. We don't really need a, a road map here. So where we're going, we don't need roads, like that movie says. I'm talking about uh, author, podcaster, thinker, pundit, Micah Hanks, the man behind the Grillian Report, and a whole bunch of other projects uh, we'll talk about tonight. And uh, he's back on BOA Audio for a good old-fashioned banal of America Jam session. Who better and Micah Hanks for a jam session. So welcome back to the show, my friend. Salutations, Tim Banal. Let's get ready to rumble and rub everybody the wrong way, as we tend to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing I like better than rubbing somebody the wrong way. Wait a minute. Uh, so I was thinking, we haven't talked. It's been a year, like, since I had you on the show. And uh, mm. So what happened here, Micah? We don't know anything about UFOs yet. We still don't have a Bigfoot. We, you know, we got no ghosts. We haven't proven anything. We haven't solved anything. What what the hell happened, man? I thought I thought we were going to be working on this over the past year. Well, my first and primary objective had been to get to uh, Los Angeles back in April and hang out with you. I failed miserably uh, and and had to scratch that one off the dossier. So looking ahead, <laughs> onward to bigger and better things, I suppose. And yeah, it's it, it's true because Tim, there there are the the ever present mysteries. Uh, you know, I won't say too much about this, but I'll just um, I'll very, very briefly mention that uh, I have uh, spent the majority of the afternoon, the last four hours, in fact, monitoring the Joe Rogan podcast uh, because it was one of the most <laughs> insightful. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I know, I'm a big I like fan it. of Joe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not I, because, I am, like I'm, you were listening to it. You were you were monitoring. <laughs> Well, let's let's describe the difference between listening and monitoring. You know, if you listen, you kick back, you have a beer. I'm drinking uh, decaf tea, so that's the first problem. I'm still drinking de- decaf green tea in a large mug right here. <laughs> and I took, let's see here, how many pages of notes did I take? One, two, three pages of notes. So, yeah, I was wow. actually monitoring. Wow. Yep. 
I was monitoring the podcast, and I won't say again too much more. I, I but I, I want to give props to Joe for putting together what I think was one of the finest conversations and one of the most necessary conversations right now. My good friend Randall Carlson was one of the I don't know if you'd call it a panel. It was more kind of a roundtable slash debate. But Randall was there with Graham Hancock, who I've met and spent a little time with, and actually gotten to talk to. And then a fellow I've never met or talked with, but who I'd like to talk with, Michael Shermer, uh, the prominent skeptic. I got to tell you. Um, and this will be all I include on that subject on this podcast. But coming Uh-oh. from what I think is a fundamental, yep. But coming from what I call a fundamentally skeptical disposition on things myself, Tim, uh, I was amazed. Uh, no, no, don't get me wrong. I respect Michael Shermer among skeptics, especially because he is a more friendly and approachable skeptic. He is not a denialist. He is not a a person who who ridicules just for the sake of just trying to sound snarky like I think a lot of skeptics do. And so I, I really respect that about Shermer and always have. But he came to this discussion, and I think he was, and I'm just speaking fairly, he was woefully, woefully unprepared to discuss a lot of the archaeological uh, subjects that came up and said some very outdated things, primarily about uh, the first arrivals into North America and the idea of the so-called Clovis first hypothesis. This is something I'm deeply in, interested in and involved with. So again, I'll leave it at that. But what, what I think the big takeaway from this podcast was, was that we don't need to look at people who, and I know a lot of people in this community don't look at skeptics and say, well, you know, they're not the first people I go to anywhere, right? I, I do try to balance my arguments, okay? I, I do try mm-hmm. to listen as much to, for instance, those who would be advocates of the existence of things like UFOs or even the you know, possible existence of something like Bigfoot, I try to balance those types with the skeptics. But seeing Michael Shermer uh, unprepared and uh, misinformed, and I'm not attacking him because really I think he did a great job and I appreciate him. And some of the, there was a lot of value and a lot of merit to a lot of things that he said. But but it just goes no to no no you're not coming comment. at him personally. You're just critiquing his <laughs> his take on things. So I, you know you don't need to apologize. That's- and he, well, I do because I don't want someone to hear that and take it the wrong way and be like, "Oh, he's just you know being another naysayer." No, no, no. I actually do respect Michael Sherman, but I feel that I, I was in, just go on my Twitter at Micah Hanks. Follow me on Twitter, folks, and you'll see everything I had to say about Michael Shermer right there. Oh, there were boy. a lot of problems, but, and these aren't my opinions; these are factual errancies. Okay, so again, what we learn is we need to question what skeptics have to say about these things just as much as we question those who uh, present alternative theories, like Graham Hancock. Now. Again, as far as not having any answers about Bigfoot, UFOs, things like that, coming back to your fundamental talking point there, <laughs> we really don't have a lot. You know, I mean, how many more books can we write speculative folk tales, basically, legends and stories about things that people say that they've seen without a whole lot more tangible evidence that we can move forward on? I'm sorry, again, if that rubs somebody the wrong way. We were getting tweets about this prior to the podcast, you know, but hey, sometimes we do have to ask those hard questions, don't we? Both of the skeptics yeah, yeah. and of the making extraordinary claims. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what the hell that guy was talking about. So <laughs> I don't know what I don't. Know. You said something like he they, that he felt like he was undersold or something, something like that. Where it sounded like, are you selling like penis enhancer pills or something on your show? It was something weird. Like he's like, he's like, it's like I I didn't get my money's worth or something. It was like, what are you talking about, dude? It's a podcast. Um, well, you know, I like to have a little fun with. Uh, you know, there's a part of me, of course, that worries when people say that, you know, I'm not going to tune into Tim Banal's podcast tonight because Mike Hanks is going to be on there. And I want to think ah, to myself, sorry. well, how how can I better reach people? You know, how can I how can I present uh, information or articulate what I'm saying in a way that doesn't make people feel burned or, or 
disenfranchised for whatever reason. I don't, I'm not, again, sure what would have caused that. But but there's also that side where you have to say that if you're not stirring the pot and making a few people uncomfortable, then you aren't doing your job as a researcher and a presenter of information. I think that we have to challenge ideas and arguments, and that's really what we're here to do, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, you're right about having to keep an eye on these skeptics because uh, I mentioned it to you off the year a while back, and I, I brought it up with Stan. That there was this idiot skeptic back when all, everyone was talking about fake news. This idiot skeptic was like, it all began with the UFO newsletter APRO. They're the ones who first started printing fake news. And it was like, what the fuck are you talking about? What are you, crazy? <laughs> like, where are you just pulling it out of your ass? And it was like in a relatively mainstream publication where it was like, they should be ashamed of themselves <laughs> for even running this stupidity. But they did. So, but we won't well, even... <laughs> they're just... <laughs> Yeah, we won't. We won't. But I will just add to this that uh, I know the skeptic you're talking about. I have had some meaningful dialogue over the years and some very nice private email exchanges, lengthy ones with that skeptic. I know you've spoken with that skeptic at length also. And, you know, again, the problem was is that that was a fairly biased interpretation of the so-called history of fake news that was incorrect, factually incorrect. Um, the, the, the primary claim being that, of course, fake news really kind of began back in the 50s and 60s with UFO uh, groups, when in truth, as you, if, if you look back through history, fake news, newspaper hoaxes, these sorts of things, they have been a part of American culture since the founding of this country. And newsflash, the idea of fake news or bad information being uh, seeing wide circulation goes far back, uh, much further back, I should say, uh, yeah, yeah. than just yeah. the United States. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon that we are seeing here. So the skeptic in question, who out of respect also I won't name, but I will say, although I understand that they were trying to say essentially the same thing, it's a much older phenomenon, they really misattributed it, and that was factually incorrect. So I think that, again, while the intention was good, the facts weren't there. The true fact is that fake news is something that I think we're seeing differently today, and a lot of that has to do, banal, with the way that media is obtained by people, how people get their news and where they read it, the World Wide Web, and, of course, you know, what gets uh, the most clicks you know, the, this clickbait right. phenomena. So, right. you know, we could say plenty about that. But again, when we talk about being good skeptics, we do need to question everything. Uh, we, when you hear factual inaccuracies being made by skeptics, uh, you're not wrong to say, well, actually, hold on, guy, slow down. Let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about this. That's exactly what we need to be doing is having these conversations and really getting to the bottom of the fact versus the so-called fake news. Because sometimes reporting on the fake news can be fake in itself <laughs> to an extent. Right, right. Well, that's the thing, too. The, I feel like you and I, at least, we try. We come at this from an honest perspective, you know, with our hands out, like being like, hey, man, I'm not armed. And it's like, this person, I don't want to belabor this, this angle, this APRO thing too long, but it was like, this. plenty of people I know raised hell about the stupidity of this, of this statement, including myself uh, when I interviewed Stan. And it's like, if you want to sell yourself as a genuine little ass skeptic and someone who genuinely wants to get to the bottom of this, then you have to have the, the chutzpah, you have to have the testicinal fortitude or whatever it is there, the guts to say, hey man, I blew it, I fucked up, I, you know, I, 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 I'm mistaken in what I, or, I, or I was trying to say this, or, but to just ignore it and say, oh, these, these UFO nerds, you know, that kind of shit, it's like, you're you're not playing you're not playing with a full deck, you're not playing with a fair deck either. You know? It's like give me a break. You know, I'm one of the first guys, like when that Chilean UFO story came out in January, I was like, Holy shit, this is awesome. This is like 
a great UFO story, and finally, like, some government's going to get to the bottom of this. And then it fell apart, like, in three days. And I was, like, one of the first people then to say, oh, shit, it fell apart, you know? It's like I'm willing to fall on the sword when the facts don't hold up. I'm not out there just selling a uh, a biased bill of goods. And I think that's what the, some of these skeptics do, you know? Well, yeah, and in fairness, too, uh, you know, there are also the good skeptics, and then there are some people in the research community uh, that study UFOs and things like that that are equally willing uh, to sell biases, false information, uh, hoaxes, and bullshit. And see, that's, again, something exactly. I love about you. You've always – you you have always truly, as long as I've known you, and let me just say this. I've known you for years. Um, I think the second interview I ever did by phone ever had been on your show. And as long as I've known you, yes, been all you've been a very honest person. Even if you call me and we're not on the air, I mean, you're like, Mike, I want your real opinion on something. You know, I've always respected the way you come at things because you really do try to call bullshit when necessary, uh, whether or not it is a popular opinion that you assert. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I try to... Try to be as honest as I can on the show, you know. And if I if I if I have to fib or or sort of let sit back while someone else is fibbing, I I try to make it pretty, you know, pretty obvious obvious that uh that what I'm hearing I find dubious without being a dick about it, you know. Because there are some shows where people would be like, they want to call somebody out for something. It's like, eh, I don't need to do that, you know. This person's giving me their time. We're trying to have a conversation, so it's like if I don't really believe what they say, it's like, eh, you know. Kind of having some trouble with this, you know. So I prefer you, you, you catch more flies at honey than you do with vinegar. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's true. You know, Abraham Lincoln, for instance, uh, he was uh, <laughs> he, he once discussing temperance. Uh, he, he was he was essentially making the statement that if you're going to bring someone to your argument, and I uh, persuade someone, uh, for instance, not to drink. Uh, he said, we don't bring people to our argument by attacking and ridiculing them. We must first make them think. That uh, they are our best friends, uh, and then we can bring them to our argument. And so I got to be honest. I mean, when I was in my earlier, uh, you know, years becoming a researcher, and I, you know, maybe in my early twenties, I went through a really argumentative streak there. A period where I would get into it with. Um, I did work in talk radio, so I would get into it with my fellow hosts. I would get into it with my girlfriend at the time. I would get in oh, into it with my family. Yeah, we we would we would argue a lot. And I began to realize that I was becoming a, a well, let's let's give this a proper term. I was trying to become a master debater. Okay, <laughs> I was. I, I I thought that I had to debate everything with everybody, and really all it was was just argument for the sake of argument uh, alone. It was me being contrarian, and <clears throat> I got to a point where I began to realize, you know, this is not constructive, and I kind of unwound myself and came down off of that. And over several years, I've I've really become, I think, better at having a discussion with people, um, and I'll have people try to uh, debate sometimes, and I will consistently try to steer it away from a debate and try and find common ground with people, to which debaters will often say, what are you doing? I thought, why, why don't you argue your point instead of talking about what I'm discussing? And I'm saying, well, I may actually agree with you. Let's not presume that we disagree on all points. Let's actually find where we have common ground and then build our way out from that, which will often throw people. Uh, for a loop. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, we have to kind of approach all these sorts of subjects in the same way, whether you're talking about politics or, you know, science and skepticism versus the unexplained. Let's let's understand that we actually do probably have more common ground than at the outset many of us would um, agree to admit. And and understanding that common ground, for instance, let me let's talk about UFOs for a minute and all. Sure. Uh, with, with the 
with the UFO argument, we hear people say, well, you know, 90% of UFO, actually, they'll usually say 99% of all UFOs can be explained by natural phenomena. Now, I agree. And then someone will say Venus or, you know, refraction of light off. But see, that's where I start saying, okay, now it's one thing to say that there are perhaps natural phenomena that could explain a, a variety of UFOs. Um, and perhaps the majority as well. I don't know if it's necessarily 90%, but then again, I mean, there are no, there, those figures are rough at best. There are no exact numbers in terms of, because again, those actual anomalous UFOs, or at very least the ones that remain unexplainable, i.e. unidentified flying objects, those kinds of things, you know, we don't really know how many uh, varieties of phenomena observed would constitute actual UFOs versus those which would not. And therefore, you know, to try and say 90% of all this can be explained, you know, I do think that the majority sure can be explained in that, yeah, probably natural phenomena and certain misidentifications of other kinds of things, both man-made and natural, do account for, yes, the majority of UFOs. I'm sure Stanton Friedman would agree, and I know he does because I've discussed this with him many times, as you have too. But the thing I think that we miss is that people say that if we can explain UFOs as being something other than alien spaceships, we must assert always that there are prosaic explanations for these phenomena. Somebody sees Venus or Jupiter or something in the sky. And they think this UFO, it's bright, it's, it's brighter than other stars. It doesn't really twinkle like stars. It's in the same place every night. We watch it come up over the, 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 the horizon. So whatever this thing is, it just sits there and hovers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're probably looking at a planet. But does that really, is that really the best explanation for all UFOs, especially those which seem to possess characteristics that are very atypical of these kinds of uh, astronomical phenomena? Uh, when, we, when someone describes seeing a very large triangle-shaped object, moving very slowly. Uh, you know, I think about that St. Clair County UFO incident from back in 2000, where all the police officers in parts of uh, southern Illinois observed this thing. Uh, again, Brian Dunning, a popular skeptic, says this was one of the American Airship Company's blimps and that this is easily debunked because nobody thought to contact them. He said, I did. They said, yeah, it was probably one of our blimps giving a VIP tour. They never give any records of the flight of any blimp. They never show any evidence, a shred that would account for the object that was purportedly seen or why every police officer who saw it except for one of them who observed it at too great a distance to discern anything more than a light, they don't offer any explanation for why every officer described a distinctly triangle-shaped object, slow-moving except for at certain times when it would suddenly very quickly pick up speed and cover a large stretch of, of space in a very short amount of time. A very anomalous characteristics of an aircraft, especially of that size. Uh, every police officer that saw this except for one described it as being triangular in shape. There's no information about who the VIP tour uh, was given to, why the VIP tour took place at 4 o'clock in the morning, the most logical time of all to give a VIP tour, right? Of course. I mean, again, a highly speculative and, frankly, extremely credulous scenario given as explanation with no actual facts to support it apart from the fact that Brian Dunning claims he contacted the American Airship Company and they said, yeah, it could have been one of ours. Case closed. I don't think so. In fact, yeah. that explanation yeah. does not match the witness testimony. And if we cannot trust our officers of law spread out across several different municipalities, you know, all observing the same object over the course of a couple of hours on the same evening in question, some of them at close range, and one who actually even photographed the thing. Granted, it wasn't a good photo. But, I mean, if we cannot trust our officers of law and look at this and say, maybe they really did see what they said that they saw. If we have to come up with a cockamamie excuse for why what they saw looked completely different from what it supposedly actually was, which shouldn't have been there at that time and place to begin with, you know, if we can do no better than that, I'm skeptical of your skepticism. 
Right, right. Well, that's the thing here too. That's the they can't the, these folks. They can't say I don't know. It's like not in their DNA or something. It's like, it's like you present them with a crazy case, and they have to come up with like they will go to the ends of the earth to come up with some stupid fucking excuse for what it is instead of going, I don't know, you know. So that's to me that's the real. And I and listen, there are people in ufology who are worse or just as bad who are like it's a fucking alien spaceship and they're coming here because you know, da 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 da. da and, they, and they invent these fantastic scenarios. For for something that we get the bottom line we don't know it's just something weird that was in the sky it's like that's what the U and UFO stands for man it's an unidentified flying object it's like people need to disassociate that from just just keep it as a it's just a question mark man it's a blank space it's not that's I think the problem you know and people fill this blank oh, yeah. space with all this with their own fucking baggage. You know, well, that's, that's, that's what it is. We could ask this question. Yes, it is. I, th- I agree with you. And I think, Benal, you know, we could ask the question, well, if, if the majority of UFOs are either not alien spacecraft, but probably not blimps, and both the skeptics and the UFO believers are, are largely, you know, kind of catering to their preconceptions and pushing less than likely scenarios for what some good UFO reports are, is there really anything worth studying? You know, I do have friends who tell me, you know, you, man, come on, Mike, are you ever going to get away from all that stuff? The question that I have about UFOs uh, would be, well, is there something of scientific merit to the study of UFOs? And, and I find, you know, again, my UFO people think that there's nothing in the world to see or to understand or to explain or study but UFOs. My people who are less inclined to be interested in UFOs are like everything but UFOs should be interesting. My question is simply this. In the broader consensus uh, opinion, or, or perhaps you could say alternative uh, realm of science. I mean, is there something that we can learn from the study of UFOs? Uh, as, as it relates to these large aircraft that, in truth, my gut tells me, and that is a, a speculative position I take, but nonetheless, I maintain, I think, that it's probably a logical one. My gut tells me probably we're looking at some varieties of government aircraft and that there are echelons yeah, of government of levels of secrecy, agencies and divisions and things that you know typically are kept well off the books. Uh, as a result of black budget programs and the like. I mean, I think that there's a very good case to be made uh, throughout history without looking at even the more anomalous UFO cases. We can look at just fairly typical aircraft for the time uh, and, and, and documentation that is clearly shown as a result of mention of aircraft but redaction of the names of those aircraft, that there are aircraft that have been employed for missions, especially over the Pacific uh, Ocean. We saw a report from 2015 that did exactly this. It named three aircraft. One was redacted, so presumably we don't know the name of a particular aircraft that was explicit, explicitly stated in the documents released uh, had been engaged in spy uh, missions over the Pacific. So we do know that there is a good case to be made, and there is some good uh, information and data that supports the fact that these aircraft are in existence. Now, are they something highly anomalous like the large triangles? or perhaps disc craft or something else like that. I mean, should we really leap to the conclusion, perhaps, that these so-called large triangles are necessarily something anomalous at all, or are they merely utilizing a technology or varieties of technology that appear uh, less than typical to the, especially the untrained observer, but also to some people with a background in aerospace and aviation? You know, the skeptic asked the question, how could that many people keep something secret like that? That is a big question that we have to try and overcome if we're to really look at the veracity of UFO reports. I mean, if government is behind some of this, how is a, a secret that well kept? Uh, well, I do think, though, that that's, you actually raise. Let me jump in here, Micah, because you raise a really good point. Yeah, that, that you sort of touched a nerve there because 
when you look at it from that perspective, it actually makes the whole idea of like how can they keep this a big secret uh, work in a way because it's like let's say we're talking about the 90% we can explain, right, and the 10 are unexplainable, the 10%, the sort of just going off that basic idea. Let's say 7 or 8% of those are government craft, right, that are secret craft. Like there's no – if somebody, if you were, if you were holding on to the alien secret and you were in the government, it's like that's a really tantalizing thing to, to know. I mean, that's life changing. That's world changing. Uh, but if you're like working on the XB32, which is like a triangular blimp thing that's stealth, it's like, yeah, it's not that. It's, it's easy to keep that secret, you know. It's just a fucking airplane. So to me, it's like, how do they keep it a secret? Well. A big percent of these are secret craft, and they're like that's a point of pride if you're working on a secret craft that you don't want people to know about it and stuff. So I think I think that kind of answers a logical sort of question where it's like they don't have to keep that much of a secret. They only have to keep secret whatever the two percent are that are that, that that are the really unexplainable ones if they know anything about it. That's a good point, and also I'll point this out to you: uh, if we're talking about uh, secret clearances and people who under oath have uh, within their their position in government uh, obligated themselves to secrecy they have they have sworn that they will not reveal state secrets and that they will maintain secrecy based on their clearance uh, in relation to the projects they've worked on you know I've known a few people over the years who've worked in in military who've been in Air Force Army all different kinds of things uh, I've known plenty of people and currently know people who have uh, secret clearance or higher clearances uh, and they never have ever at any time revealed to me information that they were not supposed to reveal and told me, listen, you know, you're not supposed to know this, but I can tell you, I've never once ever had somebody reveal information to me that they uh, stated I was not supposed to know and that they clearly had a clearance uh, which uh, gave them access to said information. Now, I mean, that's just me, but the, the point I'm making here is that when people work in government and they know, hey, listen, if I actually tell these secrets, not only could I be held accountable? Not only could I be putting American lives in danger, not only could I be uh, imprisoned, uh, not only could this really uproot a lot of hard work that our government has done over the years. When somebody is facing all those burdens just to get a secret off their chest, people say, why aren't there these you know, deathbed confessions and things? We would have had that happen by now if there were really that many secrets being kept. I'm pretty convinced that when people – and maybe there's a sociological and a psychological element to this also, you know, the master and the commander kind of a thing. But but I believe that when people uh, generally uh, go and they, they take service, uh, you know, in, in government and they believe in the cause that they are fighting for and working for and they uh, swear themselves to secrecy, I believe that, yes, in the majority of instances, people really do keep those kind of secrets. Does that mean that our government has all the, the, the secrets about UFOs and they know about aliens and you know Eisenhower met with them and all this stuff? Probably not, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. Now, does nonetheless, does it mean that there probably are secrets that have been kept from the public? I absolutely believe that. I don't know what they are, though, and that's what I'm trying to differentiate between. I believe there probably are secrets and good reasons why they're kept by people who have sworn under oath in our government uh, by virtue of their jobs and by virtue of their belief in this nation. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, that, yeah, they will keep those secrets, but I don't know what those secrets are, and I think that really that's where the speculation about what's behind the veil of secrecy it really gets out of hand. But somewhere in the midst of all that, there is, I think, a valid case to be made for a UFO phenomena, which is constituted by a variety of different things. And for a skeptic to say that, there, look, there, we all know that there's nothing to UFOs, not so fast, not so sure. Right, right. There may be right. a lot more to it than you've considered. 
Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. To me, it's like it's like that old expression, but like reverse it in a sense, where it's like there's something there there. I don't know what it is, but there's something there to it. You know, there's something to it that's driven me all these years is trying to figure out what it is, you know? So, but, yeah. but the end, the endless struggle is, 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 is fought with the people who say there's no there there. And it's like, what are you talking about? But it's, it's, it's frustrating in a way, you know, cause I'm getting kind of like uh retrospective here in a lot of ways, cause this is our 10th season. We're wrapping up the seasonal format, sort of a big celebratory uh, thing here. And it's like, Oh, I've been doing this for like 12 years. It's pretty crazy. And, it's a real kind of like a mix of sort of wistfulness and also frustration in a sense where it's like, shit, man, I've been doing this for 12 years. And like, I joke with you when we started the show that we don't have any answers to these things. But like, I've been, I've been thinking about that in the, in the broader perspective where it's like, this really is like, it's a long haul, man. This is a long haul. And it's, it can get pretty frustrating at times because it's like nothing moves fast in the paranormal, man. Nothing, nothing moves fast. It seems um, it's very, it's a very, very sort of like it requires a lot of patience uh, if you're really gonna if you're gonna keep your sanity in this field because otherwise you can get that's, really bitter or really insane. Well, also that's why a lot of people who came into this looking at it and were very interested in UFOs uh, later end up becoming very skeptical. Kevin Ramble's a good example of that. Um, you know, on that Joe Rogan podcast today, Graham Hancock, uh, on a couple of occasions when confronted with uh, differences between what he wrote, for instance, in books a decade ago and, and books that he's written um, within the last few years, he says, I am allowed – my thought is allowed to evolve. If I'm confronted with evidence that contradicts something I once believed, then that's fine. And and it's hilarious how the skeptics continued to uh, attempt to hold him to things he had said previously and has since renounced. Now, see, I've done the same thing. I've done the yeah, exact same thing. I mean, yeah, I do. I mean, I've, I've, it, I think when I came into looking at UFOs from the outset, I mean, I initially probably thought, man, maybe there is some evidence that you know there are interplanetary visitors and otherworldly things happening. And I, I don't rule out that possibility. It's just that after, like you say, after spending you know a good. You know, I've spent well more well over a decade doing it. I've been podcasting as long as you, by the way, and congratulations on that. Um, but as, <laughs> as far as research goes, as far as research goes, my man, I mean, you know, I've, I've definitely been in it about as long as you. Uh, well, longer, I mean, in, in terms of my interest, but really uh, getting involved with the research side of it, you know, at least as long as you've been podcasting. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I know precisely what you're talking about, and I'm sure I feel that way because of exactly what you you intimate about that. You know, nothing moves very quickly. And you might say the same of science anyway, but that is also the reason why, because when we can when we can apply our logical deductions to more tangible things and we do begin to see some results, that is, I think, one reason why I have steadily over the last few years been moving more towards science. I've taken extreme interest in archaeology. I've taken extreme interest in, um, for instance, paleo-Indian cultures here in America. I've taken extreme interest in physics. I've taken a lot of interest in astronomy, and I've begun to try and understand natural phenomena that can perhaps with some, with some, some keen observation and maybe even a few uh, clever insights, we might hope to be able to explain some of these things. A few examples, natural luminous phenomena in nature. Uh, on numerous instances, I've stood out in the, the night and observed the sky and, uh, and seen, well, when I say numerous, I say probably at least three occasions. I've observed what appear to be these little bright flashes of light, pinpoints that appear and then disappear. On one of those occasions, it was fascinating because when I saw it, I looked in the exact area to try and clarify what I was observing. And by that time, of course, it was gone. And lo and behold, it does it again. Bam. 
And so I look into the scientific literature and find that from the 1980s there was a paper written about what they called naked eye astronomers, i.e. people who are observing without telescopes, who described seeing what they called these optical flashes or optical bursters. And um, although there's very little in the way of scientific information about what these people might be seeing, a more recent study, uh, which has appeared recently, uh, discusses how satellite imagery trained back toward Earth has observed strange flashes that occur at times. And I wonder sometimes – now, they, they were saying that it could have been anything from you know, lights reflecting off of, of lakes and natural body, uh, bodies of water on Earth as, uh, as in – uh, interpreted by the lens of the cameras uh, oriented on the satellites which are observing. They, they, they suppose a number of different things might actually account for this. Carl Sagan had even described strange flashes of light that satellite imagery tended to show from time to time. So, you know, the reason I'm interested, obviously, is because these luminous phenomena, some of them, uh, might indeed account for a few UFO reports. And lo and behold, we also might learn some things about non-UFO-related things by studying this sort of stuff. So, you know, I think I've gravitated more toward general interest in science and you know, so-called anomalies within science, uh, not just geophysics and luminous phenomena that might be, um, I don't know, related to meteorological phenomena or whatever else might, you know, uh, indicate that they appear in the sky and thus might be natural phenomena of some sort. But I mean, I'm also interested, again, like I said, in archaeology, history, these kinds of things. There are a lot of mysteries worth studying uh, that maybe will bear more fruit uh, when studied uh, that, that perhaps UFOs and some of what I call the paranormal pornography, you know, the hardcore paranormal stuff, or Mothman, Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, goblins, yeah, oh, yeah. this kind of stuff. I, I'm not saying those things shouldn't be studied. I'm just saying that like you have already uh, stated, I mean, how many more stories can we tell without physical evidence? Uh, that doesn't mean it's not out there, but it should at very least indicate that perhaps our so-called researchers aren't really doing so-called research at all. Maybe we really need to get people out there who have a little more scientific mind for things and really try and involve themselves in good field work that's not just going to tell us more Bigfoot stories. You know, let's, let's find evidence that substantiates right, these right. stories, or let's close the book on it if we don't find said evidence. Part of the problem for us, I think, too, though, is like we've been in this so long that we've heard it all, we've seen it all, we've kind of like, there's no, <laughs> there's very few like stories, old stories we haven't heard that, we, you know what I'm saying, that we haven't, that we haven't heard. It's like, there's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun in a lot of ways for us, so you have to search out the stuff that's like new, because it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've rung the, the Bigfoot rag dry pretty much, you know, as far as trying to get to the bottom of what the hell's going on with that? You know, I've heard it all pretty much. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it seems that, again, what what you'll tend to see is this is, I think, a phenomenon that's mirrored in UFO lore as well. Back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the world was rife with crazy reports of UFOs. And on into the 1970s, we had landings, we had humanoids, we had some of the best UFO encounters of all time, Socorro, you know, Pascagoula uh, incident from 1973, things like that. And all these... I mean, these really good UFO cases, and nowadays we don't have as much. I mean, it's, it's almost like all the really good UFO reports went away. We had back in the 1950s and 60s police officers coming forward and saying, look, I saw Bigfoot. We had yeah. stories coming out like uh, that of Albert Osman claiming to have been kidnapped by a family of Sasquatches. You know, what apart from what we see that's fairly sensational on shows like Finding Bigfoot do we hear comparable to that today? Are there aspects of our culture that are changing? Uh, and does this in some way account for why we see less strange phenomena? Now, some people would say, oh, but we actually see more. Look at the statistics on UFOs. The sightings are on the rise. Well, no. But 
there are more sightings appearing on the World Wide Web. And again, the ways that people access information, just like we said about fake news, the ways people get their news and the way that they access information on these subjects has changed over the last decade or two uh, with the proliferation of the World Wide Web. This is technologically really marking a huge change. For me, I remain hopeful, like you know, about subjects like uh, cryptozoology. Uh, but now there's the the story of, uh, for instance, back in 1983, something really strange that happened to Gambia. And these kinds of stories, again, it's not it's not a Bigfoot incident that happened right here in the United States, and so you don't hear as much about these kind of stories. But in Gambia, back in June of 1983, uh, just a couple of months after I was born, in fact, you know, we had this story of uh, a carcass of something, a dead animal washed on a Gambian beach. And there was a 15-year-old kid named Owen Burnham. He and his family had uh, really been naturalists. Owen was raised up around naturalists, and he himself, I guess, although amateur at the time, uh, had been quite the enthusiast. He knew all the different animal species, had a lot of time in the field, and he drew some really good sketches of this creature, which affectionately became known as Gambo. Uh, and what he drew looked like, I guess you might say it was sort of like a cross between an alligator and a dolphin. Uh, he he said, uh, yeah, he in fact said local villagers uh, in this portion of Gambia had actually called the thing a dolphin, but he, of course, knew what dolphins looked like and said this thing was not a dolphin. It seemed to have like a long, pointed, pointed kind of a tail. Uh, he likened the mouth rather than being, I guess, like, a, like an alligator or something. He, he did liken it to being more like a beak, kind of like a dolphin. Uh, the color didn't seem to be right. He said it had a white underbelly and a darker kind of a brownish top. And he said that the remains, when he discovered them, were not particularly uh, decomposed. They were not badly decomposed. Uh, this carcass, he said, uh, was remarkably well-preserved at the time that he found it, probably because the creature hadn't been dead for very long. And as the story goes, they say that the villagers took the thing and they actually cut the head off of this creature. Um, the body was buried and that the head was apparently sold to a tourist, is what they said back in the 80s that came through the area. This tour- I'd love to know if indeed this really happened, if a tourist or someone has in their collection somewhere some extremely anomalous uh, evidence of a mystery species out there. And see, the, the problem with this is that it's 1983. I mean, there were cameras. Nobody photographed this thing. The, the kid being 15 years old, he said he looked at it. He drew sketches of it. And he says that he feels that the sketches are very accurate, and he was you know, comfortable in saying this was not a known species. But the skeptics say, well, you know, there aren't any photographs. It's unlikely this thing ever really existed at all. This is probably just a hoax story. Right. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I know that we always have to say if there's going to be good a good case to be made for some sea monster, we do need good evidence. And obviously, this case doesn't give us good evidence. But you know, Carl Schuker and other cryptozoologists, of course, have uh, you know involved themselves in this, and they've claimed to have discussed this over the years with Owen, who again, 15 at the time, nonetheless, was pretty up to speed on what varieties of animals existed, aquatic and otherwise, in that region at that time. Uh, right. Shuker has continued to be in touch with, with Burnham over the years, and uh, he says his, he's extremely knowledgeable. Uh, his his descriptions and, and the narrative have always remained the same, and he remains adamant that he couldn't identify the animal that they found that time. So frustrating, though, those near-miss kind of stories. Ah, we could have had it, and we lost it. What are we talking about here? You know, Shuker said he thought it resembled some sort of an extinct plesiosaur-like animal. Uh, I, think a pl- I think it was a plesiosaur. I believe is, is yeah. the variety which essentially would have been a – it didn't have a long neck or anything like that. It didn't look like a, a typical long-necked plesiosaur. It had, again, it would have more closely resembled a cross between kind of a, a dolphin and an alligator in, in shape. So mm-hmm. what, what we're talking about, 
I mean, I remain hopeful that maybe there are going to be some some mysteries like that that will be solved with time. And so, you know, I, I always remain hopeful, even with Bigfoot. I really, I really do. But it's frustrating when, like you say, you know, you've really just talked this thing to death years now, and it's like, and what more do we have to show for it than just stories? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's really uh, that's the frustrating part. It's funny though. It's like you were saying about this. This uh, I hate. I hate ripping on skeptics, but I also love it because I hate them. So, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's like I guess I must just be. I must just be more less cynical, I guess, in that sense, because it's like uh, than the skeptics. I mean, because it's, I, I, I mean, you always have to allow allow for the possibility that somebody's making up their story. But then it's like, I find it hard to believe that some 15 year old kid in Gambia in 1983 is going to make up some story about a a little creature that washed up on shore. Like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. That makes that's less believable to me than uh, a, a creature washing ashore. It's like why why well, does this kid make make up this story? I it may not be unbelievable that a kid would make up a story. But but what I do find problematic is that the general tendency among modern skeptics is to disbelieve somebody if they don't produce any evidence. Uh, is it okay to say well that's an interesting story? But, you know, we can't really prove anything without better evidence. I mean, a picture, a drawing that you've given us doesn't prove anything. I mean, I, I concede that. I, I, I completely Absolutely, agree. Yeah. But to go so far as to say that, well, you know, again, it's the speculation that skeptics will do about the motives. This kid was obviously just trying to get attention. He wanted to be, to be famous. Think of all the ways that one might become well-known for something, apart from making up a cockamamie story, a story of some sort about some you know, creature that, that doesn't fit, you know, any kind of category easily. That just, again, there are better ways that you, you might be able to, to find uh, fame and, and, and fortune rather than to make up. I'm sure the kid never made a dime off of this story. Exactly. The whole point, he's, a, you know? like, he's a footnote yeah. in cryptozoological history. It's not like you, I guess if you want to hang your hat on that as a life accomplishment, but it's like, I guess, I guess maybe if you're 15, that sounds awesome. But it's like, nah, yeah. come on, dude. I'll tell you though, there are some interesting Bigfoot stories that I've uh, you know looked into over the last few years. Um, and uh, I, I like I'll the one about really the lady who did you hear the recent one about the lady who got in the car accident? You must uh, have heard about yes, that. I, big I, news. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. She she claimed that she saw a, a creature chase a deer out into the road, and uh, she ended up uh, crashing her car because she was distracted by what she saw. And yeah. um, again, you might look at that one of two ways. I mean, she. She made up a ridiculous story to to try and uh, account for why she wrecked her automobile uh, and, and might have been able to use the wreck of her automobile as a way to also get attention and to, uh, you know, uh, if not uh, win some sort of, uh, you know, or, or, or achieve some sort of a notoriety or, 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 you know, get some sort of, uh, you know, financial, uh, you know, benefit out of it. I don't know. I mean, you could look at it like that, but you could also look at it like this is such a crazy story. And if you're going to give a, a plausible scenario for why you wrecked a vehicle, why of all things are you going to say that there was a Bigfoot involved? I mean, you know, right. again, I try to see things you know, from both perspectives. Um, I had a weird thing happen. I was at a UFO conference in, in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, um, about three years ago. And uh, this couple who I had known, um, Dick and Marilyn Carlson, uh, came up and uh, they said, you know, Micah, we have a gift we wanted to give you. And they produce a box and they open the box and within the box is a large uh, very real looking I guess you'd say casting of a footprint and and it's pretty obvious what this is and they say you know we've not only got the footprint we've got the forensic sketch of the face of the thing this was seen by a man named Ken Storch now Ken is actually pretty well known uh, in the community 
Uh, he had been a former police officer himself, but of course had uh, really, I think, uh, started things uh, as far as his UFOlogical interests with uh, investigations of the Cash Landrum UFO incident. Another one of these famous incidents that causes me to go, you know, why would people go to such lengths to lie about something they claimed that they saw? Uh, speaking of the, the witnesses in that instance, uh, Ken Storch, um, the story goes that he had been in Pennsylvania with Dick and Marilyn and that he walked down into this kind of this, this valley and uh, encountered what he described as being a juvenile. He said, I mean, the, the thing really looked human. He said it was covered in hair. It had kind of, you know, brownish skin. It's, it had a scar over its, he, I think it was the left eye. He said, I could very clearly even see what looked like little bits of crayfish shell in the beard on the thing. And um, and he says, I mean, I, I see it. I, I encounter it in the woods. It's it's about 15 feet away from me. And it, as quick as I see it, it's gone. And it takes off into a stream, he says, into a, a river there uh, in Pennsylvania. He says it took off into the stream and, and, and just booked it. It was gone as quick as I could say, wow. And he says, I thought it was fascinating that the thing took off and escaped via the river and hence leaving very few prints and it have a discernible uh, scent that it would leave on the ground. He said, this thing obviously to me knew how to get out of there and not be uh, followed and um, while carrying this small white-tailed deer. Now, for most people, this would sound like an extremely incredible story, and they would say, this is utter trash. Well, of course, they had the footprint, the casting. Now, you know, if I put my foot over that casting, the foot is, first of all, it appears to be a double impression. You can clearly and very distinctly see two separate heel imprints at the base, which may give the mistaken impression that the foot is actually longer than it is. Uh, secondary to that, which it appears to be the left foot, uh, with the inward toe or the big toe uh, oriented on the right side, if you follow me, mm -hmm. there yeah. also appears to be a, a, a less distinct impression on uh, just adjacent to the left of what would be the ball of the foot, which appears as though it could either be some sort of debris or something upon uh, the, the ground area where the thing stepped, which there's plenty of that vis visible in this track, or it could also have been uh, further evidence of this double impression, and these might be uh, the, the pinky and, and, and the adjacent toes on that portion of the foot, which were uh, left as a secondary imprint, where the foot appears to have slid or lifted slightly and came back down. But either way, it's a very unusual print in that there are obviously what look like two prints, but there's one that is far more distinct than the other. So it's still a very good print with lots of discernible details, especially that big toe. Uh, no greater distance between the big toe and the smaller digits uh, than a typical human foot. In all ways, uh, you know, morphologically, this, this resembles a human foot. And being a size 12, myself, well, 11 and a half, if we really want to, you know, be specific, <laughs> I can put my foot, I could put my bare foot over this casting and it very closely resembles to, to me, uh, the size of my foot. Now, Ken had said that he believed this thing was a juvenile. He says it wasn't maybe more than maybe six, uh, or six and a half feet, probably at most in height. Uh, but what's interesting is again, one question I think that we have to ask, he says this thing definitely looked human, but I mean, there was a lot more hair. Um, but at what point do we say, I mean, something is so distinctly similar to being human that we might say that this thing is essentially human? I mean, the only real defining characteristic that seems to differentiate Bigfoot from you or I is, well, there are two things typically. There does appear to be more hair on the body, and generally these things are larger, according to reports. Um, I, I, I have had to at times ask myself, I mean, could we be looking at something a little different? Could we be looking at, in some way, shape, or form, something that is essentially human? in which case we can apply some skepticism to the idea of this mythical monster ape-like creature. What if we're looking at something that's a lot more like a human? Um, so I think in some ways, and this is speculative, I'm looking at this as more of a 
like a thought experiment. I'm not trying to make an argument for the existence of Bigfoot. I don't know what Ken Stort saw. I didn't take him to be a liar. It's an interesting story, and I kind of leave it right there. Uh, and I did speak with him thereafter. I actually have a recording of a conversation he and I had where he gave me the details, which matched perfectly what Dick and Marilyn had told me uh, beforehand. And so I have in my possession this alleged footprint of this thing. We can interpret this one of two ways. You know, maybe somebody left that footprint there. Uh, maybe Ken, uh, you know, found it. Maybe Ken did see what he saw. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. Uh, again, I don't take him to be a liar, and I'm not going to say that just because, well, I don't think I can believe in something like Bigfoot. But I do definitely ask the question, is this mystery what it has long been supposed to be? This mythical ape-man thing, is that really blowing this out of proportion? Can we, you know, is there another way we could interpret what people claim that they see and still account for the multitude of reports of these creatures? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't have those answers. And so unlike a lot of skeptics, rather than saying you are a liar, you know, Ken Storch had to have made up this story. You know, I, I, I'm not going to be like that. You know, I, I, all I can tell you is, hey, you know, this is a mystery. We don't have the answers. Uh, I, I, exactly. I've talked with Ken, and he, he, seemed, he seemed to tell, yeah, a very credible story. And, he, you know, I have the footprint right there <laughs> that the guy says that this is the footprint that was left. We made a casting. He had the forensic artist he knew from his days in the police force, uh, you know, who helped him draw this thing to the best of his ability. And he says this is a very good representation of what it looked like when I saw it. I mean, that's all we know, but there are plenty of other stories like that. Maybe the scientific community should say, look, is there a different angle we can take? Can we examine this in a new way that we've not thought of that might help us understand what we're dealing with here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was em emboldened by the uh, – or enthused or whatever the word would be, optimistic about – I don't know if you heard about their – they're doing a thylacine, a Tasmanian tiger uh, scientific expedition in Australia, and they're going to, like, set up a whole bunch of game cameras to try and – in areas where they think it might be. This is, like, through a university in Australia. And it was like, fuck yeah, man, we need, we need that in America. Why can't, like, some enterprising university put up the money to try that in America, you know? I'd love to I see think it. So maybe – if they get something good, although it's funny, then there was an article like a week later that was like 1.6 odds of a thylacine still being alive is 1 in 1.6 billion or something like that. So it's like, talk about the ultimate underdog, but I'm pulling for it, and I hope it is still alive. And it's like maybe, fingers crossed, maybe if they get something of interest with that, it will wake people up here in America who are like working at universities who will, who will do that. Because you and I, dude – even though we're pretty well known and pretty well respected in this field, at least people don't think we're like jokers. It's like if we put our money together and did something like that and, and strewn all these game cameras around, it wouldn't matter if we got like a crystal clear picture of Bigfoot. Like no one would believe it. But if somebody from, you know, if somebody from some university somewhere in Oregon did it, then they would have the clout where it would actually mean something. As unfortunate as that sounds, that that's the truth of the way the world works. Uh, so to, to bring it all around, it's like thylacine thing. That's good. I'm glad they're doing it. I hope it works out and produces something of interest, which might light a fire here in America. Well, I, yeah, I agree. And again, I'm pretty convinced that the thylacine is still out there. There's been some incredible footage that has been, uh, obtained over the years. Uh, there, there was one piece of very interesting footage that appeared to show an animal. This was obtained, I think in 2012, uh, around, uh, St. Clair, which was near an area called Lake Sapo. Um, there was another piece of footage I, if memory serves, think appeared in 2015, which seems to show a creature very resemblant of the thylacine. Again, this creature had only gone extinct fairly recently, and there's very good film footage, you know, photographs and actual film 
uh, of these, the last ones in captivity. And uh, in fact, new photographs of one of the uh, captive thylacines uh, emerged just the other day. Uh, forgotten yeah, photographs other than new. But I, I see some of these these videos. I, I mean, again, the behavior, the locomotion of the creatures in these uh, films. I got to be honest with you, man. As you bring this up and we're talking about this, I mean, I almost get this kind of thrill. And I, I, you have to learn, I think, to kind of to pare back on that a little because I think people do get a little emotional about this in the sense that they get excited and they want to believe and therefore they do believe. And I always try to temper that with a little cold, hard logic. But, man, I can't help but get a little excited when I watch these videos and I see what to me definitely looks like a good candidate. The video is clear enough and good enough that it seems to be a strong candidate for a creature like the so-called extinct thylacine. But then again, there are a lot of different other animals uh, that are presumed extinct in which we still have sightings of them. The thylacine is by no means the only one. You know, there's the Eskimo curlew, which is a small uh, northeastern or northwestern, I'm sorry, shorebird, uh, which has been believed to be extinct for decades. But there have been sightings in the 1980s uh, as far south as Texas. I think there have been some more recent ones, too. Uh, no evidence whatsoever in, in the way of a uh, specimen or of good video or photos that show that the curlew is still alive, but there have been uh, qualified bird watchers and uh, ornithologists uh, or ornithologists who have who have said, that, yeah, we saw this thing and it looked very much like the extinct curlew. Um, so the problem I think is that you know when we talk about cryptozoology, people expect that they want to be able to say, hey, you know what, Bigfoot, yeah, okay, cool, Mothman, you got it, Loch Ness monster, hell yeah. Cryptozoology and the search for new animal species or those presumed extinct, which in fact may instead merely be critically endangered, uh, doesn't have to really always be these so-called mythic, so-called monsters. It, it can involve a lot of different animal species, some of them fairly small and mundane by comparison, but that is no less a shocking discovery if indeed we continue to find animals that exist today, which were believed to have been extinct for some time. I, I'm hopeful that the thylacine is out there, and we often underestimate uh, how weary uh, animals can be, uh, what degree of stealth in nature they can possess. And I remain hopeful, uh, although I've certainly become more doubtful over time, but I still remain hopeful that there could be something to the Bigfoot and the Sasquatch legends. But I've had to ask more skeptical questions. Why don't we have better evidence for a creature like that? And if there is at least some good evidence, and I think that perhaps there at least is some worthy of consideration, uh, the other question we have is, could it be that we are looking at the problem uh, the wrong way? And people might say, what the hell is that supposed to mean? There's a big critter out there. We've got to find it. Well, are we dealing with a critter or are we dealing with a essentially what appears to be and resemble and, and perhaps behave like an archaic variety of uh, early humans? Right. Maybe this thing is – Again, similar enough to us that it would actually qualify as being some variety of the homo uh, species, but it is not quite human. I mean, there definitely are descriptions of these things that do seem to differ uh, in terms of physical appearance and uh, locomotion even. I mean, uh, well, we hear the reports of – I'm sorry. Yeah, I, well, I was, I'm agreeing with you because it was, stands to reason in a sense because uh, the North American continent was largely untouched for so long that it would give them time. It would give this species sort of time to – to put up roots and, and sort of like, I don't know, just, just they'd be a little bit ahead of the game. So I would give them a, the, 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 I don't know, the benefit of the doubt to that, 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 that it's possible because the continent was so long untouched and there's still parts of, of, of North America that aren't, haven't been explored necessarily, or at least are, you know, barren of human uh, visitation. Well, again, many would argue that there is no way that a creature like Bigfoot could possibly exist in a place uh, as, as well uh, populated as North America. But 
But again, what I will also point out is that in the locations in the regions where the alleged sightings take place, again, you know, look at this as a pro argument if you like, but I don't really mean it as a pro or a con. I'm merely I'm making the observation where people say that they see these things are among the most rugged and remote locations that still exist in North America. It's not like people yeah, claim, exactly. you know, yeah, you know, on the outskirts of Chicago, we saw a Sasquatch. That would really make no sense. And those kinds of reports are not the ones that are forthcoming. And again, here's the thing I have to I have to say. With all due respect to guys like Michael Shermer and, and other people in the skeptic community and a lot of them who I, you know, have good relationships with. Um, after what I saw on Joe Rogan today, and I can see that there can be again, like my big issue with what Michael Shermer was talking about was that he didn't seem to understand that the Clovis first theory, the idea that the Clovis culture which existed, you know, between you know, uh, eleven thousand, twelve thousand years ago here in North America. The idea that they were the first to come to this country, uh, he didn't seem to understand that that has long been disproven by the discoveries of archaeological evidence of earlier human settlements, uh, earlier human uh, habitation at sites like Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, one of the most extensively excavated sites in North America. He referred to Monte Verde, Chile, which was one of the very first confirmed pre-Clovis sites. He referred to that as being an anomaly. In other words, well, there, that seems to be something, but that one kind of stands out by itself. Absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong in every way, shape, and form. I could go on mentioning confirmed pre-Clovis sites. Paige Ladson in Florida. You know, that one was underwater. They had to actually dive down underwater into a river, into a sinkhole to be able to find a little shard of a lithic amidst some mastodon dung but nonetheless, which they were able to get proper stratigraphic sequencing for, and they know absolutely is evidence of something that would have existed prior to what we identify as Clovis. So the point I'm making here is that Shermer was wrong. I'm not going to castigate him for that, but we recognize from experiences like this that, hey, a skeptic can be wrong too. So now let's look at Bigfoot. There's no way that a creature like that could exist, and you're crazy if you say that it could here in America. Well, you know what? It might be crazy to go around and say without any good evidence that Bigfoot absolutely exists. So I have to remain skeptical. But I'm going to challenge the skeptics just as well when they say, look, can't be, isn't, doesn't. No, actually, maybe we've been wrong before. Let's not step in that same intellectual black hole here and get sucked in. Let's, let's leave enough room for possibility, but let's try and approach the problem differently. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, like I said, they can't say I don't know, so they have to speak in absolutes. Uh, it's like how you can't speak in absolutes about this stuff, man. It's a it's still a giant question, you know. I, don't I, think I will give I will give them sort of I will give sort of the I, I will I guess give them credit. I don't know what the right word is, but I I mean for a skeptic, they're they're in an untenable position anyway because they have to they have to prove a negative. They have to have the impossible task of proving a negative in a sense where it's like they have to, they can't really ever necessarily prove these things don't exist. So it's, they're in a tough position, but I don't think they handle being in that tough position very well either. Well, actually, you know, I'm, I might differ with you there, Tim, uh, in the sense that they're in a tough position. And with regard to the idea of proving negatives and whatnot, I actually find that there are many skeptics who they shy away from. And again, to his credit, Michael Shermer did a fine job in terms of being someone who would sit down and actually have a debate, but I don't think that he performed his very best. I think that Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson uh, did a fine job showing how little Michael Shermer actually knew about the subjects that he was tasked with as representative skeptic uh, with, with being skeptical of, and he didn't do as good a job, but I think that they all came away with more respect for each other, Shermer for Hancock and for Carlson, and I think uh, each of them for Shermer. I really think that there was some progress made with that uh, Joe Rogan interview. I mean, uh, so little as a podcast, a celebrity podcaster sits down with a bunch of 
you know, guys and has them all sit down and have a powwow. Really, do we expect to move forward in our scientific thinking as a result of something like this? I think we did. And I really commend Joe Rogan for getting the three of them together and doing this fabulous four-hour podcast. See, that's the thing, though. Again, four hours. Wow. We have. Yeah, it was lengthy, and a lot of it was it, it got to the brink of being rather boring, even though I think it was quite energizing. Uh, but there was quite a lot of heavy scientific discussion, especially during the latter two hours uh, when they brought on a couple of geologists. And um, for me, I'm fascinated by that, but I was watching the live listenership numbers actually dwindling. And I have to say that, again, I realize that you know, it's not something that is exciting and controversial always, uh, and therefore it doesn't always grab our attention. But you know, to see people having these in-depth discussions and debates – uh, that that's that's very inspiring, and I think that that was a real milestone that occurred today. But again, you know, the, the broader point I really want to make here is I do often see that skeptics will say that their argument is rock solid, but really what I actually see them doing, let's be honest, they can go online. They won't do what Michael Shermer had the balls to do today and sit down and get into a, a good, heavy discussion. They will kick back and they'll write on their little blog, and they can always reference – consensus opinions and they can always reference again and granted that is generally good scientific data that they're referencing but they're not really getting out there and getting involved in a debate and they're not presenting their own research they're attacking people who make claims that differ from those which fall in step with the view of the world that they have the skeptics and then they sit down on their blog and they go and they source again no actual research of their own they source consensus material and reliable though that may be, that's not really getting out there and, like Graham Hancock said, standing on the back of the Sphinx on the day of the spring equinox, you know, and watching the celestial alignment and whatnot. He, to his credit, whether or not you agree with guys like him, they do their own research. But many skeptical bloggers, they sit back, and not only do they just rely on whatever source material they can find at the bottom of the Wikipedia article and make it look like they're smart with a pre-planned statement that appears in a blog post rather than an actual real-time discussion, what they are actually doing is that and they're being nasty about it because it gives them this ego boost to be able to be snarky and make other people look stupid. Makes them feel smarter. That guy's needs to that kind of skepticism needs to end right now. This we're gonna be vitriolic, we're gonna attack people, we're gonna be mean, and we're gonna you know kick back in our armchairs and write, you know, on our computers and make ourselves look smart so that we feel good at the end of the day. Guys, that's not good skepticism. News flash. We need more of like what we saw today with uh, Joe Rogan and, and the guys. You know, we need more people who get in a real-time situation where their ideas and preconceptions are confronted and sometimes harshly, and we have to all step back and realize we might not have known as much as we thought we did. Or as I saw today, Hancock and Carlson knew a lot more than they were given credit for by the skeptic community. But I mean, yeah. you, you apply that to Bigfoot. Yeah, where you are you disagreeing with me, though? Now I'm confused that I, because, oh, I, yeah. because I I'm, felt sympathy because they had oh, yeah. to prove a negative. I still think they. Well, I still think they suck. Don't get me wrong, but it's like I. It's a tough position to be in to try and have to prove a negative. I, I don't think that they all suck, but but where I the only way I, I disagreed with you was that where you had said that they had a hard job. Uh, I think that actually it's very easy for a skeptic to sit back, rely on consensus information. Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? That's very easy, and that to me. It's okay if they're relying on good data and they're going to say, guys, I'm sorry, but that's wrong, and here's why. That is fine. But when you when you pair that with what is obviously ego-driven, bitchy, snotty attitudes, and you're just picking on people and trying to make them look bad for pure folly and for pure sport, that's not good skepticism. That is all about your ego. I could name some skeptics who are like this who have come after me, but you know we don't have to get into all that. And I prefer not to because you know Neil deGrasse Tyson has said this. I've heard a few other people say this. I think Carl Sagan, the late Sagan himself, had said it too. 
He said, uh, for me, it's not about debates. I don't do these debates because as an educator, my job is not to debate. My job is to educate. If you watched the old Cosmos show that Sagan would, would uh, I thought you were going to say Bill Cosby. I thought you said Bill Cosby. I was like, wow. No, 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 how, no, how is he tying this in said, Bill Cosby? <laughs> no, I said the Cosmos show that Sagan did. The original Cosmos. You know, he was uh, – Sagan had this wonderful – if not delightful attitude. He was a skeptic about UFOs, but I mean, when he would talk about those subjects, there was never this, you're an idiot, you're wrong, you're, you know, this this kind of vitriol. You know, you didn't see that from Sagan. He was always a gentleman. Um, you yeah, see absolutely. more vitriol from Stephen Hawking. You see more, you see more vitriol from Stephen Hawking, for God's sake, than you would see from, <laughs> from Carl Sagan. We need more guys like Sagan who write good skepticism, like the Demon Haunted World, and who present good, well-rounded skeptical arguments without having to go out there and just it be all about his ego. And I believe at some point I recall him even saying that that is that kind of attacking that is just ego-driven. And so, you know, again, to me, that's not a hard thing to do. And you know, really, I mean, I, I'm sure that we do fundamentally agree here. Uh, but, but I was just, I was just trying to differ on that point that it's, it's hard for them. No, some of those skeptics have very easy jobs, and what they do, I don't think is very admirable. It's not that, yeah, we're we're in agreement. We're probably we're probably like uh, we're, we're probably just uh, sort of like circling around on semantics. Yeah, they're they're, they're they're these folks you're talking about. They're inherently lazy. So I think that's what it is. They're they're intellectually lazy, you know. So that's so so it's not a hard job. It's not hard to be intellectually lazy. Believe me, um, I'm intellectually <laughs> lazy about a lot of things. So, <laughs> so that's perfectly fine. I try not to be, but in some instances I am. You know, I'll tell you where I've had to challenge myself in terms of intellectual fortitude more than any place else, Benal, is uh, when it comes to the American political uh, environment right now. I'm, uh, you know, maybe we won't go That's down that rabbit pivot. hole politics. Well, That's I, a great I do want to say. Yeah, yeah. I do want to say, I mean, like, well, we have talked about this, and I, did know, I do know that you had wanted to discuss it a little bit. And so, I mean, I will just say that right now, my perception, I, I try to be a centrist. And that's, that's why I do a podcast called Middle Theory uh, that uh, essentially takes a, uh, a centrist approach. And I've had people in the past say, you know, I wish that you kind of would, you know, have an opinion on things from time to time. Well, I mean, I always have an opinion on things, but I don't allow my opinion to fall lockstep with a party, a political party or a political ideology. I try to look at things on a case for case basis. Uh, it's kind of like saying that if a person believes that they that there could be certain things that might qualify for being UFOs, that that person automatically must also believe that giants once walked the earth, that Bigfoot is real, that elves and fairies are out there, and that they live under logs. You know, that's not a fair assessment to make. And, 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 and when you begin to fall into a party politics kind of mode of thinking, I think that you once again fall into that potential trap of becoming essentially just that, somebody that because my party says it, so I agree with everything that this politician or that this ideology or that this political platform uh, holds to be true. I, I just don't agree with everything that the Democrats or the Republicans, uh, as a party, say is and should be. Right. So, right. It's very interesting because right now with the media, man, I'm seeing both sides of the political fence pitching conspiracy theories. I mean, on an almost daily basis, it is unprecedented. Right. Right. That's what we were talking about before the show started. It's like uh, both the hardcore people in both sides of the in both parties are. Are are subscribed to conspiracy theories. It's an insane, an insane world right now. It's really hard to like 
coming from the conspiracy world, ironically enough, which is where we do, for better or for worse, you know, we swim in the conspiracy pool as a profession, as crazy as that sounds, as proud as my parents <laughs> are of that <laughs> accomplishment. As longtime residents of the conspiracy pool, it's like, what the fuck? Everybody's in the pool now, man. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And it's like, you don't even... You you don't even know what what what's going on anymore. You don't know up up is down, down is up. Alex Jones is like a a global celebrity. He's like a main. He's like an A list celebrity in America. As crazy as that sounds, uh, it's well, absolutely yeah. absolutely mind boggling, you know. And it's like it's treacherous waters. I don't know how much you discuss this kind of stuff on your show. It's treacherous waters because the people, it's it's it is it it is just like the real consp- the, you know the conspiracy theories. You know we were. We cut our teeth on, you know, the 9-11 and the JFK. The, the people are just as crazy and adamant about these conspiracy theories that uh, that are reported on every night on the mainstream news, you know? I mean, I'm looking at the CNN right now, and it's like all they're talking about is this crazy – is this is this crazy week that Donald Trump has had and, and sort of – and it's all fueled by conspiracy uh, – cons- this conspiracy theory, the Russian conspiracy theory essentially – well, I'll tell you something. Uh, here's here's an interesting one that we can look at that I think gives us some perspective on things. Uh, I'm rather surprised to see that the uh, the controversial death of a Democratic uh, National Committee staffer that occurred uh, back during the 2016 election, Seth Rich, has been back in the news today. Now, I remember reporting on this when it happened and not thinking much of the story apart from the what seemed to be a tragic uh, mugging gone wrong, although I did ask at the time this young man was found uh, shot – and killed. There were allegedly uh, what was what was said was that it was an a, a attempt to rob him. But when they found his body, they said it was a mugging gone wrong. He was shot and killed, but no one took any belongings from him. His his wallet remained on his person when he was found. And so, this was sent to me by one of my listeners, and we covered it on my podcast. And I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, that's an interesting story. Um, too bad that that happened right here, coinciding with the Democratic National Convention and all this. But you know, I didn't really think about it as being anything deeper. Whispers start to come out that there had been potential uh, evidence for contact between Rich and another individual or possibly between Rich and actual WikiLeaks. The um, the WikiLeaks uh, organization, specifically Julian Assange, had specifically stated that he was looking for and offering a reward for information about the death of Seth Rich. Um, right. Of course, people have continued to ask, and I'm not trying to go off this whole like, you know, because the Russia thing is, like you said, it's, it's really become like the big news. Uh, we've we've had uh, reports issued by the U.S. government that have shown uh, some degree of Russian uh, meddling, and and it's not just been in America. We saw something similar uh, leading up to the French election, so that is, I think, a factual narrative. Although there are some who uh, tend to say that it's all made up, I really don't think that that's factual. I think that there's plenty of evidence that shows that Russia has been involved in things. But when we talk about, for instance, the the Clinton email releases, and you know, people have tried to say, and that probably is what what happened. Russia did that. Well, Assange has denied that and says that no state sponsored. Uh, activities were behind what uh, WikiLeaks uh, uh, obtained. But now here's what's interesting. Without trying to say this is or this is not what happened, I want to look at the different ways that spin is being applied to these recent headlines because apparently uh, Seth Rich is back in the news. A private investigator claims that there's not only evidence of it but that he can prove essentially uh, that although right now this computer that belonged to Rich is in the possession of the FBI, he believes that there is evidence that Rich was directly in contact with WikiLeaks. But look at the different kinds of headlines. We've got um, 
right now, I think a Washington Post reporting, I'm going to read the headline here for you. Family of uh, slain Seth Rich says reports that he fed DNC info to WikiLeaks are untrue. Okay, right, Washington right. Post reports. Who bring that up? It's like, yeah, there's, <laughs> it's classic conspiracy yeah. theory shit here, man. It's crazy. Now, that, now here's the, what's interesting. Washington Post again is saying that his family says that this whole thing about him feeding info to WikiLeaks that's untrue. Now, that's the Washington Post, typically more liberal. Uh, we, now I'm, I want to go over to again the the most uh, conservative of the conservative, Fox News. Let's see how they present the headline. Okay, same story. Headline reads, family of slain DNC staffer Seth Rich blasts detective over report of WikiLeaks link. So they're essentially talking about the same thing. The family disagrees with this detective. But let's go down here and see what the detective claims. He says, and I quote Rod Wheeler, okay, former uh, District of Columbia homicide investigator, says, my investigation up to this point shows there was some degree of email exchange between Seth Rich and WikiLeaks. Okay. Even if tomorrow an email was found, it's not a high enough bar of evidence to prove any actions as uh, emails can be altered. And we've seen that those interesting, uh, interested in pushing conspiracies will stop at nothing to do so. This is according to Brad Bowman, okay, uh, one of his uh, family members. Although right. Bowman and Wheeler oh, – Bowman said Wheeler was paid by a third party. The family is named as clients of Wheeler's capital investigations on a contract signed Rich's father, Joel Rich. Anyway, the point I want to make here, though, is that the, the investigator, okay, who's involved with this – and I want to go back to another quote here, okay – I have seen the and read the emails between Seth Rich and WikiLeaks, the federal investigator told Fox News, confirming the McFadden connection. McFadden, again, being Gavin McFadden, a now deceased American investigative reporter who allegedly was kind of a go-between. But he says, I mean, I have seen and read the emails between Seth Rich and WikiLeaks. My investigation up to this point shows there was some degree of email exchange between Seth uh, Rich and WikiLeaks. I do believe that the answers to who murdered him sits on his computer on a shelf at the D.C. police or at the FBI headquarters. So – how do we interpret this? Because, again, the the right is looking at the same story and saying, well, the investigators are saying that, yeah, they've seen evidence that there were emails between the two. And then the liberal media reports that – well, his family says that those reports are untrue. Both side, is, both side points at the other and says what you're saying is a conspiracy theory. What right, are the right. actual facts? You know, what are the actual facts? And maybe that's yet to be completely determined. I mean maybe we'll have to see more in the coming days. And I realize that based on people's, again, political biases, that they will hear what I have said, and they will look at either side of that narrative, and they will find the one that suits their preconceptions, and they will say that if you agree with the alternative, you're crazy. All I want to know is the truth, but what I do see on an almost daily basis, and you can apply that to Donald Trump in his first 100 days in the office. You can apply that to whatever. You know, Bernie Sanders, I mean, there are any number of different uh, individuals and, and, and a lot of different narratives that we could look at. And we could say, you know, is there some sort of an element of conspiracy? And I see both the right and the left kind of pushing those these days, which to me is a really unusual phenomena. Does, what does it say? Does it say that there's just a lot more general unrest in in our country right now? Does it say things about the way that media is changing and the way that our journalists are writing it? I don't know. The limits of debate in this country are, are established before the debate even begins, and everyone else is marginalized. They're made to seem either to be communists or some sort of disloyal person, a kook, there's a word. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. And now it's conspiracy. See, they've made that something that, that, is, that is, uh, sh should not be even entertained for a minute, that powerful people might get together and have a plan. Doesn't happen. You're a kook. You're a conspiracy buff. I think, in a way... Putting personal politics, personal feelings aside, I think like to a lot of people, the election of Trump is like this absolutely unbelievable thing. 
Like it's something, it's an event that was so unbelievable that they have to fill the the narrative with like conspiracy theory. Whether the conspiracy theory is real or not is uh, your mileage may vary. You know, I'm kind of waiting to see how it all shakes out. You know what I mean? But it's like to me, it's <laughs> I'm waiting to see how it all shakes out. I'm kind of a, I'm leaning towards the Russian conspiracy that that Trump was like working with the Russians somehow, and and it's like part of the reason why I'm leaning towards it is he's not making it very easy for me to believe him because he seems to be bungling things left and right to try and cover something up. It's like clearly he clearly or he's just like really terrible at being president because he's like so something is something weird is going on, man. I think we can all agree that like uh, we're seeing some kind of like covert war play out right in front of our eyes, like some kind of covert uh, intelligence versus executive branch war playing out. You know, clearly, as these leaks keep coming every day, more and more damning leaks to like bury this guy under a tsunami of of, of scandalous stuff. You know. And it's, yeah. it's, it's for, yeah. it, like, I mean, I can only look at what they're telling me, you know, you know what I'm saying? So if they, this will all shake out eventually, I hope, you know, but it certainly looks to me like, uh, and I'm no Donald Trump fan, but it certainly seems, looks to me like they're doing their best to push him out of office, like, as soon as fucking possible. Like, I, I do, you know, I do think that, that yeah, that, that that appears to be the case. I think that there is an ongoing investigation hoping to find anything that they can use uh, to, uh, if not defame him, uh, then actually uh, go so far as to uh, present grounds for impeachment. I do think that people feel that and maybe they're right to feel that way. Maybe they feel that you know, based on uh, his uh, low popularity, based on uh, his his performance in office the first hundred days, and 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 the the strange ups and downs that we see, maybe people are scared enough that they say we've got to do no matter what, and at all costs we've got to do everything we can to to find legal grounds to get him out of there. That guy, you know, cannot serve as our commander in chief. On the other hand, I mean, there's there's there are a lot of ways that we can look at this. I mean, uh, I wonder again, uh, Trump trying to hide or cover something up versus Trump continuing to just do exactly what I was talking about, doing a poor job. This whole firing of Comey thing, I I, I, I my gut kind of tells me that rather than trying to hide something by 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 firing Comey, that uh, more than anything, it's just that's the way Trump behaves and expect the unexpected in the most literal sense with him whether you know it's it's uh, you know confirming a, a a controlled limited air strike against Syria whether it be you know firing the FBI director right uh, right going to the middle east you know making surprise visits here and there uh, you know giving information to uh, Russia you know purportedly you know via Israel uh, which may be classified information i mean whatever the case may be you know, there, there's going to be what Trump does and the way that people interpret it. But no matter what, you will be able to, without question, expect the unexpected with him and his presidency. That's what we're seeing right now. So I think that that's part of what leads to a lot of questions. A lot of people say this is all controlled behavior. He knows exactly what he's doing, and we can't trust him. Alternatively, some people might say we know exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he should be trusted. Then there are others who would say this guy's a nutcase, and that's all the more reason not to trust him. I mean, wherever you stand, yeah, like you say, Benal, this is – a very strange period, and, and politically, this is unprecedented in the history of America. But, but I can't help but ask how has media, how has media contributed to that? You know, I mean, we we got what Rand Paul had said during the early Republican primaries, uh, what he was afraid of—a a reality TV star for president. I mean, is that the best that we can do? And how has media helped shape that? How 
how has our culture changed in in such a way that this is what people saw as being ideal uh you know for for our government uh you know love him or hate him uh, this is a this is a strange period yeah absolutely well he's a cipher you know it's you kind of hit the nail on the head where it's like people either think that he's got this uh this elaborate sort of like eight-dimensional chess game going on here where he's way ahead of and there are people that think he's just a buffoon so it's like and and and, and it's like i can see both sides of the arguments depending on the day where it's like i don't know i don't know what this guy's deal is he's really he's really fascinating you know but it certainly seems to me like you know it's i worry about the future of the country because uh now, personally, I would prefer if he was not the president. So uh, that's my own personal opinion. Whatever. Sorry, folks who like him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so if if it seems to me like they're trying to force him out of office, and therefore, like, which is essentially, uh, unless unless he genuinely is is like pull, is pulling some shady shit going on here that he should be removed from office, it's like a coup. You know what I'm saying? It's a coup. It's a, they're going to try and take him out of office through the tsunami of bad news until he can't, you know, serve as the president anymore. And it's like, if you're an ardent Donald Trump fan, that's exactly how they're going to see this. And that makes me worried. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, yeah. if, if, uh, if 40% of the population believes that the deep state pulled off a coup to remove Donald Trump from office, man, Katie bar the door. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there could be, there could be, there could be violence. There could be a real a real problem here, you know. It's like we. I don't like to say we could descend into a civil war just because. I don't know. You know, the civil war was like very cut and dry. Thankfully, like along geographical lines, it's like this would be. This would. Be, I know they say about the civil war, brother fought brother, but this would be like uh, to the extreme. You know, this this would be this would be like. This would be like neighbors fighting. This would be like neighbors fighting neighbors. There would be no geographical. There would be no battle lines. It would be just maybe chaos. The, maybe the entire thing would be fought online. Mm, well, yeah, and, and, that would be great. Then no one's getting shot. Well, yeah, but, but yeah, by that, what I mean again is that you know this part of the whole thing that has changed, and coming back to you know the idea of Russian conspiracies and things. Part of what has changed about all this is that we are looking at uh, a period where, again, rather than war, rather than secret agents and espionage in that capacity, I mean, people hack into computers. Hackers go in and electronically remove data, which they then uh, reveal in some way. It is sent to an agency, you know, a, a very, um, what some might call unhinged and at very least certainly anarchistic agency or group like WikiLeaks, and this information, however it's obtained by them, is then released, and then chaos ensues. And so what what I think part of what we're looking at here is that uh, I don't know that you could really liken it to warfare by definition, but again, the, the leverages that, that, that different uh, state uh, entities uh, use against one another, rather than being spying in actual battle, as in the past, what we're now kind of seeing is this cyber warfare, this espionage aspect that is carried out completely under cover of darkness and behind the scenes and online. And uh, that is at the crux of the uh, the issue over all the conspiracies and things that are occurring right now politically in our country. And, uh, you know, really, again, as we saw with the French election and the potential for Russian uh, attempts at trying to get information there, 
Um, we, we see it elsewhere in the world too. So again, that's the thing that I'm saying is that really, if this gets any weirder, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the technology and what role it plays right now and how that will fit into the narrative. God forbid if things get any weirder than they already are. <laughs> Let's hope that they don't. Uh, but this is already such a strange time for American politics. And really, I think just for, you know, human uh, culture and, and society here in the West, especially in general. Yeah, well, I think we're, I think we're in the, uh, I think we're in a weird state where you talk about like the Helgelian dialect. It's like, they're clearly presenting a problem in a sense where it's like the internet is rife with all kinds of problems now with the hacking and the malware thing that happened this week and everything. It's like, part of me wonders if, uh, part of me wonders if like in the future, if, if, if they aspire, they being, you know, the, the powers that be that who, who, as we all know, have no party. They're just kind of like looking out for, for, uh, keeping control over the world. If they aspire for like a, a controlled internet, and this is part of the, Problem, or if it's just gotten so wildly out of control that no one can really uh, handle it. But it's like there's there's a problem here with the internet. You can kind of see it becoming more of a problem. And it's like, what's the, are they going to offer for an answer? Like a new internet where you have to have you have to use your name. Like like the anonymity of the internet will vanish because people can't be trusted anymore uh, to use it. <laughs> like what's gonna what's gonna happen? Who knows? Or or yeah, I mean, or like there could be a situation like it sounds like a Twilight Zone episode or something, but it's like where <laughs> everybody's emails fucking get released. It's like no one, there, no one has yeah. any secrets anymore, and the world is plunged into chaos because you know <laughs> all these husbands find out their wives are cheating on them, and all the wives find out their husbands are cheating on them, and all kinds of shit comes out, and it's like. Oh man, you know <laughs> the world. Oh, well, we, we had this incredible freedom, and now we've we 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 botched it. Well, at that point, at least maybe we'd know a little something more about UFOs. Or then again, maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> you Knowing know, UFOs, that up. would yeah. That well, that's the joke too about Trump, where it's like, well, I've I've been making the joke for a while. Now everyone's saying it on Twitter. They're stealing my bit. It's you know, if Trump. Trump knew about UFOs, he would slip up by now. So it's like uh, I'm I'm now of the opinion they probably didn't tell him about UFOs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, and uh, the other thing too about that, uh, as far as like good information, bad information, UFOs, and all the whole, the, you know, the, the the current political thing. Uh, this is kind of interesting to me too. Tom DeLonge, former Blink One Eighty Two, has <laughs> recently kind of shifted. Uh, in terms of the things he's tweeting about, um, DeLong, you know, he made – well, first of all, there is this this new book co-written with Peter Lavenda. I definitely want to read it and see what, you know, their historical analysis of the UFO phenomena uh, appears to be. I reviewed the, the Secret Machines Volume 1 book that they did, Chasing Shadows, which is a novel, but it still was good, and I enjoyed it. But I've – I won't say I'm unimpressed with Tom DeLong. I like Tom. Uh, my brother Caleb actually worked for him for a short time. Um, he seems uh, he actually impresses me quite a bit with some of his knowledge about UFOs. Um, however, since the whole secret machines thing has happened, um, we, we we obviously see that Tom has some legitimate interest, and in not just that, but also some legitimate contacts uh, as a result of interestingly WikiLeaks. I mean, that's maybe one of the yeah, less yeah. often discussed things. Yeah, as it all relates to WikiLeaks, I mean, you know, yeah, Tom DeLong uh, and emails that he sent to John Podesta did show up in those in those emails that were leaked. 
And what we what we find there is that, uh, you know, he did say that he had someone he did apparently want to bring somebody to Washington to meet with Podesta. Um, I don't know that we can say so much as uh, as, as or, or venture to guess that he had some sort of influence in terms of uh, the Clinton campaign and their dealings. But he obviously at least was able to, to get an audience before uh, P- uh, Podesta and bring one of his uh, alleged, uh, uh, you know, friends from within the government, you know, and uh, who we suspect this was was Major uh, uh, Neil uh, McCaslin, who oversees like 11,000 employees there at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Science Division of the U.S. Air Force, and this individual seems to actually legitimately be working with Tom DeLong. That much we seem to have gleaned. Now, recently, he has been tweeting saying, uh, and he refers to this quote as a prophecy on Twitter, but he says that he believes that Trump will be impeached and that they're going to be taking this guy down, and it's going to be shown that he indeed had been involved with Russia and all this sort of stuff. But what's weird about DeLong is that uh, ever since around the time of the WikiLeaks release, he was posting on Instagram and places and saying WikiLeaks really messed some stuff up with that release. But, you know, even bigger, better things are going to happen. Wait 60 days, I think, was the time period that he said. And he says, watch, there's going to be a big announcement. Well, I've, I think we waited for this big announcement. I don't recall ever seeing any big announcement apart from the fact that I saw a, uh, you know, a quick uh, picture online the other day of, of this new book that uh, Peter Lavenda, who I really respect, uh, had co-authored. And, um, you know, but as far as Tom goes, you know, it's a little strange because I'm, I'm kind of looking, I'm kind of waiting and watching and trying to see, okay, you keep saying big things on the way. We've got big announcement coming out and everything and people are really going to be shocked. And then all of a sudden he just starts making these prophecies about Trump, you know, and, and how he's going to be impeached and all these kind of things. And I'm like, what is Tom DeLong really getting at? Who is allegedly giving him this information? Where is this stuff really coming from? Right, um, right. You know, I, hate, I hate to say this, but but you know I am I think with time becoming a little less and less impressed by Tom, and uh, when I reviewed his book, I initially and still maintain I had concerns that this was a gun, uh, you know, another one of these, uh, you know, Project Beta kind of things all over again. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, disinfo project. You know I mean? Yeah, I mean I was I was really I was really concerned that what we were seeing here was that just like the whole Benowitz affair, you know that. Um, Tom DeLong has basically been selected, and he's been given bad information because they see him as the perfect person to start giving a lot of bad information out through a little, a little media empire, this secret machines thing. Now, people have confronted him and asked him about that, and he says, "Look, no, this is not what's going on, you know. And I actually know a lot about this, and that's why these people trust me, and they appreciate what I'm doing, and that's why they're giving me this information." But by the same token, the rest of the world seems to be standing out here going, "Right, Tom DeLong, they came to you." They came. Why did they not go to Richard Dolan or to Stanton Friedman right, and right. say, you know, you for your years of service to the UFO community, it's time you now know the truth, and we're going to select you to be our helper to to release the information to the to the masses. No, they go to Tom DeLong, a guy who up until now, however serious it may have been for him, by virtue of only having a personal interest and in not having written books or anything up until now. I mean, he seemed to have at best a sort of a kind of a a peripheral interest in UFOs, despite possessing a lot of knowledge, which Tom absolutely does, and I really like that about Tom. I would love to be able to have a, a chance to talk with him one-on-one and see if, if our personal conversation would elucidate further any information that would convince me that the information he's been given is indeed accurate. But when he talks about meeting with these government agencies and secret you know, people and them saying, you know, it all started in 1947, right after the war, and such and such and such, and then we found a body, a life form, you know, and he's, <laughs> oh, and I'm just kind of like, this is starting to sound like that same old story, the old dangling carrot phenomena once again. Oh. Right. So, I right. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I danced with the, I, I danced with the disclosure, uh, 
<laughs> tease last year where I was hopeful that things were turning around. And it's like, it's funny though, it's, uh, for a while there, there was like three competing uh, sort of like disclosure rumors uh, earlier this year. There was also like, um, oh, what's his name? Grant Cameron was kind of mixed up in one. And uh, then there was like a press release out of Canada that people were like, some UFO group was like, disclosure's imminent. Like no, just sort of like, without any real backing. So it's like, what the hell's going on here with this? Why are, why are there three different groups uh, sort of pushing disclosure. But to me, it's like, I, you know, <laughs> unless Trump, unless Trump comes out and has to has to throw the heat off of all this, and he's like, UFOs are real, okay? Let's talk about that. Fuck, fuck all this Russia shit. Let's talk about the UFO thing, which I'm part part of me really still hopes he'll do, but I doubt that he <laughs> even knows anything. It's like I don't think the government is gonna say anything. Uh, because the world's just too fucking crazy right now. <laughs> like the world, people people can't handle any more crazy. You know what I mean? That's people cannot the, handle any oh, more crazy. Huh. That, that's one of the brilliant ironies about all this, though, is that you know people will acknowledge that Trump seems to be prone to conspiracy theories himself, uh, admires Alex Jones, things like this, and yet he seems to show little or no interest in UFOs. Yeah. Exactly. Well, meanwhile, yeah, he is. Meanwhile, his his Democratic opponent in the last election, of course, was going on Jimmy Kimmel and shows like this and saying, "Well, we call it UAP now." Okay, the and and Clinton and Podesta, they were they were very involved and in, 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 in very hopeful in their attitudes about uh, releasing uh, more government information if any were to be found and uh, uh, greater transparency on those issues. So it's it's quite interesting. Uh, in fact, that while we look at Trump as being the more conspiracy-prone individual, he wasn't the one that believed in UFOs. And I don't mean that as a slight against his opponent. I mean that that's just rather ironic. Yeah, and furthermore, well, the whole thing is weird because, you know, I, I the whole thing is weird because no one fucking bothered even, like, I think one person asked him and, like, he had no interest in it. It was, like, last April. But it's like no one – Hillary Clinton was in the news several times about UFOs. And considering how outspoken Donald Trump was about everything – no one ever brought it up. So to me, that shows that there's something there's something weird there. You know what I mean? There's something like they, they didn't want to – they didn't even want people talking about it, it felt like to me. It's just weird. Now that I say that, though, then there was like a million mainstream articles about her saying shit. So it's like what – maybe it's like reporters no. don't want to ask him. They don't want to bring it up because, like, the reporters are the worst. They could have – gotten to the bottom of this a long time ago they they blew it so yeah right yeah so maybe maybe at the end of the day the, the, the actual conspiracy is this that because clinton was vocal about wanting to be able to release information about ufos uh there was some sort of a uh operation to to ensure that she wouldn't get in office i'm just kidding i, I don't believe that at all uh no, I, no. I will put i'll put things in a bit of perspective i'm trying to be funny here but i mean but in in, in actual uh you know practice when we look at uh past presidencies and, and what what certain presidents have said about UFOs, uh, I think we can glean some things. You know, Barack Obama, of course, had said that, uh, you know, you get all fired up about what might be out there at Area 51, and then when you actually hear the secrets, he says it's actually quite disappointing, you know. Uh, that was something that he had uh, told, uh, I believe, oh, what was it, the, uh, the HBO host. And it was quoted in a lot of different uh, interviews and, and whatnot, but he referred to basically UFOs and conspiracies and stuff. The real information, he says, is disappointing. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, had said that he had that he had gone and he had tried to find information and Kimmel, Jimmy Kimmel asking him, of course, because that's kind of Kimmel's shtick. That, that's an interesting thing in itself. I read a blog post from Mysterious Universe about this some time ago, and I'd said, 
really, if we want to nominate somebody for UFO Researcher of the Year, the Open Minds uh, UFO Congress, you know, they they had actually given the UFO Researcher of the Year award to Tom DeLong this year. Yeah, uh, and Tom. Oh, Tom I definitely, definitely agree. Probably, Give it to Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel has done something that no UFO investigator has managed to do. Um, yeah, he has. Although you might say Grant Cameron has come fairly close with his U- UFOs and presidents, uh, you know, research. He's got a great website about that, uh, but but I think that yeah, Kimmel but Jimmy Kimmel is the only person talked to the actual presidents. He has before a live television audience on more than one occasion. He has sat down. He has asked Barack Obama. He has asked uh, George W. Bush. He has asked Hillary Clinton, who was not president but who was a leading candidate last year. Uh, he asked her husband and former president. Uh, he has. I mean, again, who else has asked that many former presidents, current standing president Barack Obama, and then also, and again, you know. Most of them took a fairly uh, nonchalant or even whimsical attitude toward it. Uh, the the one who was the most tight-lipped about it was George W. Bush. Um, yeah, yeah. He said uh, he essentially said, "Jimmy, I'm not going to say a word. I'm not telling you a thing." Uh, Barack Obama kind of laughed about it and said, "That's what they want you to think." But you'll remember Bill Clinton said, "Yeah, I went looking and and, and uh, when asked if you had found anything, would you have told us about it?" Yeah, yeah, I would. Is what Bill Clinton said. Um, so it, it's, it's quite interesting, the varieties of different uh, interactions and different uh, attitudes that these former and current uh, commander-in-chiefs at the time of the interviews, what they actually said and how they responded to that question. And good on Jimmy Kimmel for being the only guy in the media who will go to a former or current president and say, look, guys, let's talk about the, the, the white elephant in the room here, okay? UFOs, yay, nay, what do you think? And But what do we learn from those interactions well, number one, that the presidents, some of them do seem to have a, a, a tendency toward more transparency, probably the Clintons. Uh, it seems that some presidents uh, are more, if they did know something, they would be less inclined to talk about it due to coming back to what we talked about earlier, their their oath uh, to the country and to you know, the swearing to secrecy, as we saw with George W. Bush. Now, right. Barack Obama doesn't seem to indicate an overt interest in these kind of things, but I'll note that throughout his presidency, he mentioned such things as UFOs, aliens, and Area 51 more than any other president in, in the past that I can recall. Second behind him had been uh, Bill Clinton, who I argue had had more interest than Obama. But again, it, it although in passing and typically as a joke, Obama mentioned that subject more than anybody during his uh, presidency. He was the first president, I think, that fall in office uh, more than once mentioned Area 51. I think he was and the first. So, I think I think they first acknowledged the existence of it during his administration. There was something, some kind of technicality like that, where it was like they had kind of blown it off until yeah. they finally officially recognized it while he was president. So it was it yeah. was a uh, it was a historical document that was released by the CIA. I don't know if Gerald Haynes, uh, the former um, chief CIA historian, had authored that, but it had been um, a commemorative. Um, uh, document discussing the uh, the U two spy planes and the programs and whatnot, and it, although not explicitly related to Area fifty one, made official mention of the Groom Lake facility in the document, which was released and therefore, as a result, by proxy, officially presented. It gave us the first actual presentation of documentation that mentioned specifically the Groom Lake facility we know as Area fifty one. So yeah, that information did come out during Obama's presidency, which is. Kind of interesting. You know, I remember talking with the UFO skeptic uh, Bob Schaefer one time, uh, in fact, at the UFO Congress back in 2013. I said, I think that there are there are certain aircraft in our employ that account for these UFO reports, a lot of them, maybe these big triangles and things. And he says, you believe that? And I said, well, sure I do. And I said, come on, it's got to be more plausible 
Bob, than, than the idea that aliens are flying around. And he says, well, I don't buy that. And he says, the reason why I, th- I don't buy that is because if there were secret aircraft that had been in operation uh, this many decades later, we would have known about that by now. That information would have been released. And then shortly after that discussion, of course, is when the information released about known aircraft also divulges the first public acknowledgement of Area 51. Again, we all knew it was out there. It's not like anybody was saying Area 51 didn't exist, but there was no official record or any kind of information presented publicly about it, and then that document is released. And seemingly inconsequential though that is, it does go to show that from time to time information is released to the public. And at other times, like the documents I'm talking about from 2015, where we see evidence of, you know, again, notations describing spy plane activities operating over the Pacific uh, Ocean, but we don't get the names of one of the aircraft. What, uh, what about that does not seem to indicate that there was an aircraft employed by the U.S. Air Force or some similar agency, presumably the Air Force. It was an operation, and it is off the records. There are records that have been released about its activities, uh, minimal though they are, but very clearly the name of that aircraft being redacted. We don't know what that aircraft is. Uh, is this the fabled Project Aurora? I mean – there are a lot of people, and I've got friends in the uh, in the uh, aerospace industry who say, look, I, I think that's all a conspiracy. I don't think that there was a Project Aurora. But I definitely think that there have been aircraft, uh, that, and, and there are still aircraft that are in use and in employ, but that are not public knowledge. And I do not think that it's naive to suppose that there are things that our government keeps from us like that. Yeah, well, we talked about this last time you were on the show about how I think that the – a lot of old, old, not old, more recent, excuse me, uh, but not not like within the last few years. It's hard to explain. Like 90s era UFO sightings and, and early aughts may have been uh, may have been drone technology that the government was perfecting because now everybody can get a drone. So that would indicate that the government had drones way earlier, and therefore uh, they were probably UFOs at the time. Um, I'd love for someone yeah. to go back and look into that, but I'm too lazy to. <laughs> no, so I'm too busy. I'm too busy. <laughs> Tangent to that, I can definitely tell you that I think drone, uh, drone technologies began to be, uh, uh, see use in the 1930s. Uh, now, I know people are like, what? But no, I'm serious. R- remotely controlled aircraft that were unmanned, uh, yeah, I mean, they had first been used, uh, uh, not anything comparable to like, you know, what we see these days, the XS-7B or whatever, you know, that the Navy operates, you know, these tailless uh, small aircraft that are roughly shaped like a stealth fighter, but, uh, you know, if actually seen um, – in profile and flying quickly by, I mean, they might actually resemble a saucer vaguely in shape. Uh, some of these, some of these uh, drones. Then you have others that look a little bit more like a typical aircraft, like the Predator drones of, of fame, uh, used in the bombings and whatnot. But however you want to look at it, again, drones that were in no way as sophisticated as what we have today have existed. I mean, drone by definition just being an unmanned aerial vehicle, and there've been uh, target drones and things like that that have been used for decades. So yeah, I mean, that. But see, those didn't. They didn't look at. Those those aircraft did not in any way uh, look anomalous. They would not have been something that would have seemed otherworldly or atypical. I mean, these kind of aircraft very much resembled, well, you know, conventional aircraft. Um, smaller ones probably more like hobby planes and things like that. I've actually gone uh, – in fact, this Thursday I'm going to be going down to the, uh, the uh, Greenville Aerodrome where one of the largest uh, recreational aircraft, uh, hobby uh, aircraft – events occurs every year and uh, my friend susan is associated with that and my my band well i'm not playing as much with my with my acoustic group these days i'm focusing much more on research and podcasting which is a good thing 
but uh, the few shows that I still do are, are events like this, and this is an annual one. But it's one of the largest, uh, you know, remote-controlled uh, aircraft, you know, hobby plane events that there is in the in the country. And it's crazy because you're standing out there at night and you're looking out over the lake and you're seeing all these glowing uh, neon lights dancing in the sky. I mean, <laughs> it's very much like if you didn't know what you were looking at, you would see these things and go, my gosh, wow, look at that UFO. <laughs> these things have been around for years. Exactly, yeah. Well, one thing I was uh, uh, sort of different, want to pivot to a different point here in a sense is I, I'm not sure if we talked about this before, but if we did, then uh, I don't remember it, so I want to talk about it again. Um, <laughs> but it's funny, we're about the same age. It's like when I was, as I was going along in the beginning years of the show, a lot of times I was saying, you know, uh, when the younger generation comes along, uh, we're going to, you know, when we get older and it's going to be a generational thing, this UFO thing, and uh, people are going to be more open to the idea and yeah people are more open to the idea don't get me wrong but it's like there's a real weird sort of magic trick that came into play i think they talk about uh like social engineering how they're like they're preparing us they're preparing us but it's like if you really take a step back it's it's like when this thing kind of first came along people were like what's going on what is this thing what is this thing and, and like it hasn't changed to the point now where people just outright accept it it's it's become like a punchline it's become a thing where, like, people accept it. They don't even know, not, not necessarily even accept whether or not UFOs are real. They just accept that they're never going to be told that there's a cover. The cover-up is, is what's become accepted in a sense. And it's very uh, unfortunate, I think. It's, it's frustrating in a way because it's like that's the that's – the, you talk about how, like, ETH has taken hold in the minds of people that UFOs are, are aliens. It's like an additional layer of that has taken hold in the minds of the public, I think, uh, that's that they just say, oh, well, screw it. They'll never let us know. Oh, the government's covering it up. Ha, ha, ha. And it's like, man, this isn't a jo- joke. I wish, I wish people, I wish people cared, but I think they, I think they kind of like were, were tricked somehow, you know, so, so, so social engineering in a way. That's an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, that we could have, and uh, you know, we can we can definitely touch on that here. But heck, heck, you could spend uh, an hour or two talking about that alone. Um, Peter Robbins has often talked with me in the past about uh, what he calls the UFO ridicule factor, and kind of tracking that down. Uh, it's it's interesting because I think that there's enough general knowledge in the public of a UFO, and let me be clear in stating what a UFO is supposed to be. Okay, people see shows like Ancient Aliens. And this is an interesting thing. This is one of the big reasons I don't do a lot of television. I, I over the years, have done a couple of little TV things. And at one time, uh, back when I was a less critical thinker, I was okay with going on a television show and doing a, a segment on ghost hunting or something like that because I found this stuff interesting. And these days, um, first of all, there's this culture of like the reality TV thing. Talk about a reality TV star for president. I mean, the whole reality TV phenomena, the idea that every show has to be this supposedly unscripted and reality-based thing we're going to when in fact it's all incredibly manufactured i mean people have to go and they try out for these shows and they're essentially told what to wear and what they're supposed to say i find that so remarkably distasteful and that's why i won't again many mistake the aspiring television star with some interest in ufos might even be a so-called quote-unquote expert but they still are more an aspiring star than they are a ufo expert Skeptics even will mistake those so-called experts for being people who are actually experts in this phenomena. 
you know, when I see somebody look at the ancient aliens stars and there, I've got some friends who've been on that show. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, but, but when people look at a show like that and they say that, well, all of these people are representative of what that community calls their experts. And then you come talk to people like myself, you know, do, do I look at all those people and say, yeah, that each one of those guys, including the crazy one with the hair, that they're experts. I don't consider that an expertise. And I certainly don't consider those views to be views, which in any way, um, reflect my own. Uh, gosh, boy, let's just name him. Let's just say Giorgio Sukalos. Okay. Can we say that? Can I do that? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. I don't care. <laughs> Giorgio Sukalos. And I, the reason why I'm going to go ahead and say that, I mean, come on, you know, I can say the guy with the hair, but l- let's just drop all this naming names for a minute because I, uh, back in 2012, uh, worked with a, a fella and, and Giorgio was one of the people who was hired to come and speak at an event uh, that I participated in, and uh, I was um, I was not a huge fan of ancient aliens at that time, but at that po- point, you know, it seemed like an interesting thing to be involved with. And since that time, my skepticism has greatly deepened. Um, and uh, I haven't remained in touch with with Giorgio Sukalos by any means, and I don't know that he even would remember me, and and or you know, let alone know who I am. Um, but it's funny because for the mainstream public, I mean, I've at least had what I'm saying is I've had enough interactions with him, and I can I think fairly say I even interviewed him at one point and uh, that interview uh, aired on the Grayling Report podcast I found that I had a lot of things in common with him and also found that there were a lot of things I just didn't agree with him about but for the for the general public who may not really be interested in UFOs but have sort of a you know general idea of what they're supposed to be they would look at a show like Ancient Aliens and they would turn that on and see the guy with the hair as they know him okay and they would hear what Georgia or somebody says and they would be like okay so this is what those UFO people believe and then skeptics not only attack those people under the apparently mistaken impression that those are the actual experts that this community holds as being the people with the most knowledge about this stuff. And yeah, it's easy. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, disproving those ideas. No, I don't look at those guys as, with all due respect to Giorgio. Let him be a television star and let him be successful. That's fine. You know, I support that. And if he wants to do that, that's fine. You know, I hope I wish him well. I really do. I hope he does great, and I hope he gets everything out of life that he wants. But on intellectual grounds, it's it's also fine, and I know he would be okay with me saying, you know, I disagree with you. You know, he'd say, fine, that's great. I'm going to laugh all the way to the bank. You know, you disagree with me all you want to. No bad blood there, right? That is not a, first of all, UFO skeptic or, or, or UFO um, expert. That, to me, does not represent what UFO researchers and, and, and believers believe. I don't think that skeptics who attack that and say that that's what these people believe are right when they say that this is a UFO investigator and we've got to tear down what he believes – I think that there's this entirely uh, ridiculous misconception about what quote-unquote UFO researchers and believers actually believe based on what they see on television. I don't think that what we see on television is any fair representation whatsoever of what serious, disciplined researchers who try to apply a bit of science to what they do. And yes, I will say, like myself, I do try to be science-minded, critical-minded, skeptical, but nonetheless open to the possibility that there are varieties of phenomena, I guess we could say, that, that constitute in the broader sense, UFO reports, which are worthy of scientific study. But none of that is reflected by the television side of it. None of that is reflected, unfortunately, I think, by even the critical attitudes that are often launched at UFOs. And when I read a skeptic, they'll say, but come on, do you really believe that they're alien little green men coming down? I say, look, that could be further. It could not be further from what I actually think about this phenomenon. Let's actually get down to what I'm talking about. At the end of the day, we end up the skeptics and I, you know, sitting down and saying, oh, well, okay, so you actually, you don't believe alien visitors necessarily are coming to Earth. You don't rule out that possibility. I don't think anybody really does. 
but we don't see evidence of that. Let's see here. Okay, you think that natural phenomena might constitute UFO reports? Gosh, I, wow, this is weird. We're in complete agreement. But see, how often do people sit down and hash it out and say, well, what do you really believe? What, what do we have in common? I don't call myself a UFO believer, and yet you do, and yet you say that you actually agree with me. There's got to be some sort of a breakdown here. We, we right. can't both agree on, on most of the fundamental points here, and yet you call yourself a UFO advocate, whereas I call myself a UFO skeptic. How, how does that work? You see what I'm saying here? So, I mean, yeah, the problem yeah. is well, we got, it, yeah, it takes two to tango. So, <laughs> it does. Yeah. And we've got to understand the differences between what is actual good research versus what people call this is what the UFO people believe. You know, when it's on television, I think most of the time you can actually rule that out. And again, you know, with more power to the ancient alien stars and Giorgio and people, if they want to go out there and be on television and talk about what they talk about. But I'm saying to a skeptical public who thinks that that is what UFOs are about. Uh, you know, you may not have educated yourself about uh, what real UFO researchers actually think about those subjects. If you saw it on television, I can nine times out of ten tell you that what you saw probably is not a good representation of what real scientists and real researchers think about that subject. Uh, yeah, well, honestly, I'll be I'll be completely honest. Ancient Aliens, never seen an episode. Doesn't interest me. <laughs> well, I never... I, I know people that have been on it. I know uh, I, I've heard it a million times. I've seen the meme of Giorgio, but I think I think maybe I put it on for like five minutes just to see, you know, what it was. But I've, I've never even watched a full episode from beginning to end. It sounds that sounds yeah. aw, it I, sounds I, awful. I, 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 I have I have uh, many years ago uh, back when I still had a television. I haven't owned a TV for about six years. Um, I will watch and I'm like uh, a TV snob, and, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I am too. Like, for instance, I have Netflix, and I'll watch Netflix on a computer from time to time. So I definitely will engage in a bit of binge watching. But I think that there are also some really good quality programs uh, as far as fiction, you know, like the Marvel shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, you know, uh, uh, Luke Cage. Extraordinary. Those shows are extraordinary. Um, and, and I like classic shows like Twin Peaks and things like that, uh, or, or going even further back, you know, Twilight Zone, stuff like that. I love Sherlock and almost anything the BBC does, and it's no secret at all that I'm a fan of Doctor Who. Yeah, but we know I, you love the Doctor like, Who. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think I've ever, like yourself, I, I remember seeing segments and things about ancient aliens, but I've never actually sat down and been like, oh, right, ancient aliens is coming on and really watched an episode. Yeah, um, who are these again, people watching? <laughs> Well, that's what's interesting. Again, we must make the distinction there, people like you and I who are trying to offer serious commentary about these subjects, and yet we're not attracted to ancient aliens and shows like that at all. I'll try and watch some of these UFO TV shows, and I think that's another big reason why I don't do these shows myself. They're like, oh, this guy's an expert, so let's get him on one of our reality TV shows, and let's tell him you know, what he's going to say and how he's going to dress and what tree he's going to climb up and film and claim where he saw a UFO and stuff. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not very interested in being on a show if I'm not interested right, yeah, in watching yeah. You know, if, if, if yeah. the why would you seen... want to endorse a product you don't use? Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, I don't get invited yeah. on any shows, but if I was, I, <laughs> I'd be like, nah, I think I'm all right. That's not exciting to me. That sounds more like a band, yeah. Because you're real. Because you're real. You know, you're not a bullshitter. You're not, and I'm not, you know, again, I'm not saying that everybody who shows up on a TV show is a bullshitter. And like we've already said, I know people and I've had friends on Ancient Aliens. And I may agree nearly 100% with something that somebody who goes on Ancient Aliens says, but I could also sit down and have a beer with them, and we can be friends. I mean, I've got a lot of friends. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, having that, that in-law or that, or that neighbor, you know, who's on the other side of the political fence, and you guys love each other because, you know, you've been friends for years and stuff, and you, you, you don't have a thing in common, you, and if you, even, if you get, to get uh, together with them and have that beer, 
on a Saturday night, all you do is you debate, but you love the debate, and you're, it's all in good fun, and you, you have fun with it. And, you know, that's the whole thing is I think that it's okay for people who have different ideas and worldviews, and they want to – you know they, they might debate in a friendly and spirited way, but, but they see at the end of the day that they're friends. I feel that way about a lot of my friends, whether those who appear on television or those who you know operate and who are the serious researchers in the community. I feel that way about a lot of them. Um, I, I, as I've changed and grown and become not so much more cynical but certainly more skeptical about a lot of these things over the years, I've had to move past and move away from just wanting to be the next guy who's written 10 or 12 books about UFOs and is famous for being that guy who wrote 10 or 12 books about UFOs, and that's my big claim to fame. I don't really care that much about fame that can be claimed, but I definitely believe in the truth, and I'm, and I'm still interested in these kind of subjects, but – my attitudes have evolved, like Graham Hancock said earlier today. Uh, it's okay for somebody's attitudes to evolve. And for any, again, not skeptic, but I'll say a snarktic, any debunker who wants to make a career out of being a blogger who, who just makes fun of people, and they want to sit back and laugh at people and say, well, you said this back in 2013, but now you say this. This doesn't add up. Well, you know what? Guess what? Ideas do change. People's attitudes and their beliefs do change. If we're being effective as skeptics and educators, we're going to help other people to change their attitudes and their preconceptions and their biases about things with good data. And we're going to hope for more of it as it relates to these subjects in the future. I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. You want to keep going for a little while or how are you feeling? Man, I'm 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 fine. I'm I'm wide open. I mean, if if you want to keep going, if you have got stuff you'd like to talk about, you know, I wonder uh, if this at this hour, I might could we, could we take like one minute and grab a water or something like that? Sure, grab a water and I'll uh, I'll talk to the audience. Talk to the audience for a minute, and yeah, if people, I mean, if and, <laughs> and with, with the if, if if they want to field some questions or something, I'm I'm fine to go. But yeah, I'm gonna just grab my water bottle real quick and we'll keep rolling. All right, freshen up and we'll uh, we'll. Uh... We'll continue the conversation for a little while longer, if you don't mind. I mean, I'm just chilling, no, hanging out, chatting no. with you, so I'm like, shit, the, we might as well keep going, So, if you don't mind. I am i don't mind, and in fact, I, I'm in the mood, so we might as well. I've had enough tea today that I'm awake, I'm alert, and I think I'm, I'm ready to go. So, yeah, let me refill the water bottle go. while you deliver a brief monologue, and then we'll, we'll pick up there uh, here in a minute or so, okay? Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Cool. There you go. There goes Mikey. He's taking care of business. Uh... Let me see. Next week on the show, it's Bigfoot Portal 2, The Revenge. Adam Davies is back on the program. I believe it's his first time on the show since uh, since the infamous Bigfoot Portal episode. So that's going to be exciting because we're going to revisit that. So people who have questions about the Bigfoot Portal, uh, you know, I went out for drinks with Adam in San Diego like a month ago, and he, he was – Really adamant that there's there's really like no reason to call it a Bigfoot portal, but it's become known as that, uh, probably through my 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 fucking antics, probably because of me. But it's it's uh it's going to be the Bigfoot. Uh, re- we're going to revisit that story because I've had a lot of time to think about it, and Adam's been through a lot since then, and so we're going to catch up with Adam. This program uh, has been sort of like, we were laughing about it in San Diego, this program has been kind of like uh, charting the remarkable course of Adam Davies' incredible career in this field uh, of weirdness, and so uh, and it's gotten even weirder, folks, and he's going to talk about that next week on the show, and we're going to revisit the Bigfoot portal, and that's going to be 10 p.m. Eastern time next Tuesday night. 
uh, what is that, May 23rd. So the train keeps chugging along. Is Micah here? Yes, it does. Yeah, I'm here. There you go. All right. Plug your things just for yeah. the live audience because uh, so, we're going to lose them, but uh, the rest can catch us on the MP3. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to give something to those diehard podcasters because, as you know, uh, having done this for a lot longer than I have as far as podcasting, I mean, literally, I think I've been podcasting about half as long as you have. I remember year after year, we would always look and we would see that been all of America yet again, another year, best podcast <laughs> of the year. You know, so you, you, dude, you've done this for a long time. Uh, and I, I just got, I've got to give you props. I mean, hell, I, you know, I oh, wrote man, a book nice. about podcasting. I did. I, I wrote a, a book about podcasting, the complete guide to Maverick podcasting. Uh, there are very few people who, uh, who, you know, not only can I say had been doing it a lot longer than me, but, but people who helped me launch my radio appearances. Um, the very first radio show I ever went on was uh, a little show called um, Dobie Maxwell's Mothership which was an actual live radio program. I uh, just did a little quick thing that night um, on his show. Uh, but the first time I ever went on a podcast, if memory serves, I think one of the very first podcast interviews I ever did, it, nope, I think the first was your podcast. Yours was the first podcast. We did a long interview. Podcast. It might have been your first like intense interview like this where, <laughs> where it's like yeah. a long chunk of time. Yeah. I mean, I worked in radio at that time, and so it wasn't unusual for me. I was used to being uh, involved in conversations on the microphone, so it wasn't weird, but but that was definitely my first podcast interview. So I actually, really, we might say I had my first experience with podcasting with you. So oh. yeah, I definitely got to give you props, dog. I got to give you big Thanks, props. Man. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really yeah. appreciate that. Well, it's been great chatting with you over the years, and you know, I'm not wrapping things up for the show. I'm just sort of putting this seasonal thing to bed and coming up with some new ideas and new takes on podcasting, I hope, because I've been doing it for so long, so I want to try and have a reset and a refresh. But, uh, you know, in this in this weird sort of like box set that is the way I've been doing the show all these years, it's been great chatting with all you these years, man. It's been awesome. So it's been awesome to watch you rise through, you know, it's like we were joking about Alex Jones is like an, <laughs> it's like an A-list celebrity. It's like, you know... You and I, we sort of cut our teeth right early at the same time in this field. It's been kind of fun, you know, watching each other uh, grow, you know, in this field. It's been it's been fun, you know. So a lot of folks, when I first yeah. got into this, they were like, you know, it's like, oh, Stan Friedman, Rich Dolan, holy shit, you know. And, and then there were other folks that were like, like on my level, you know what I mean? Like young guys who were just getting into this, and you were one of those guys. So it's been fun to, like, watch each other uh move up the, the weird ranks of the paranormal, you know, to the point oh, where okay. now people are like, look at us that way or something. I hope some folks do, you know, and it's like, yeah. it's just cool. It is cool. I mean, definitely friends and colleagues here just kicking back. And that's the fun thing is uh, there are some interviews, as you know, uh, both for a interviewer or for the person being interviewed. Uh, the interviewee, I guess, as we might say, I mean, there, there's, there's definitely that, that aspect where, Certain interviews, there's a lot more work that goes into it. You know, certain guests will require you to uh, read their book before. Uh, literally, will say, you know, don't have me on your show. Oh yeah, I've had a couple of guests like that. Yeah, I've had a couple of guests. Yeah, yeah. Which is a fair question, and um, you know, I, I've I've had a few uh, guests that uh, I wouldn't have had them on had I not read their entire book. Then there are certain guests who just in the interest of time, you know, you can't read that entire book. And then there are certain hosts when, as a guest, I go on their show, they'll, they'll tell me, you know, look, 
Right? We're not reading your book. You know, you give us 20 questions. And we're going to re- we're going to ask you the questions that you prepare for us. And we'll dance yeah. around it and we'll do some stuff and we'll throw you a curveball every now and then, but I mean fundamentally, we want this interview to go smoothly, so you tell us what you want to be asked. Uh, my favorite of all the varieties of interviews are like what you and I do, which is there is very little show prep. It's like, what do you want to talk about? This, that, that, and that. Okay, cool. I'll call you at nine on Tuesday, and then we roll for a couple of hours. Yeah, exactly. and, and, go. and again, you know, I know I've mentioned him a lot today, but I mean, another guy who in this community deserves props, Joe Rogan, has been kicking mortal ass. He kicked so much ass. And what I love about that guy is I don't, he didn't care if it's Michael Shermer or if it's Neil deGrasse Tyson or who, who's in his studio. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on just a second, Neil, because really that could be bullshit, right? And he will call bullshit or he will get right up with somebody toe-to-toe, but never, ever comes across as being con- confrontational. Never, ever, I'll have ever to check it out. I haven't, I haven't heard his show, but I'm hearing, well, I'm hearing a lot of good things tonight, but <laughs> I'm hearing good, I've been hearing I, good things for a while about his show, so... I was well, I was erroneously under the uh, impression, the very mistaken impression, that Joe Rogan was just a meathead. He's just this, you know, a comedian and this, you know, this muscle guy. And uh, you know, he he speaks very plainly, and he doesn't try to, you know, he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't use a lot of fifty cent words or anything like that. And I, you know, even though because I do talk about a lot of science, there are from time to time instances where I'll have to drop some scientific lingo and some things like that. But I always kind of oh, come back you to enjoy, you, you like the 75-cent words, cut the shit. Uh, well, see, I don't want to be known as somebody <laughs> who just tries to use big words. No, I mean, no, dude, you're again, eloquent. I, you're eloquent. I was going to say, you put me over so much. I'm going to interrupt you put you over because, uh, oh. you know, you, you say you don't want to go on these shows. You would make a killing if you just get the fuck out of ufology and the paranormal. You could host like one of these reality shows. You're you're uh you know you you got the you got the factor to you, man. You got you know it's a ufology is lucky that we still have you uh, at this point because I, I think you have so much immense talent that you could if you went out to Hollywood you'd be like <laughs> you you uh, it, it would be like how The Rock left wrestling. That's what I think it would be like. That's the closest comparison oh. I can make. So we're we're lucky to have to have you in this field because you could be like the the rock of of uh, of ufology if you were like, hey, let me <laughs> pursue something outside of this crazy carny world that uh, we operate in. As I, you know, the conspiracy well, pool we swim in. And I will be honest, I've got some projects in the work right now. Uh, and without saying too much, I can definitely say that uh, you know one of my dear friends, Jason Pintrail is involved in a lot of this stuff. And, and he, he had literally just been saying to me earlier today, he's like, uh, you know, I think that I'm seeing you, Micah, begin to outgrow all that. And I hope I continue to see you move beyond all that. And I think that there's a part of me that, you know, especially for shows like this, because you, you could call it a sentimental attachment. You know, well, he was my first podcast and I'll always go back to banal. I wish I could quit you, but, <laughs> but you know. I wish, yeah, I wish more, <laughs> I wish more people thought that way. My life would be great. Well, no, no, no. I really value your opinions on things and our friendship, and I love coming on your show for that very reason. And I hope that people who listen to our show, that much like what I find appealing about Joe Rogan, is that it's not this, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved. And I mean, no, Joe's like, uh, so man, thank you for coming over here, man, dude. Let's talk about some shit. And he'll say it just yeah, yeah, like exactly. that. You know, and I've, I've kind of learned over time that, you know, I, I speak a certain way. I have a lot of interest, and therefore, you know, like you, you mentioned, the 75-cent words, they're going to come out from time to time, but I don't do that to try and sound smart. I talk about the shit that interests me. And if somebody else, you know, there's this poor guy, God love him, and I hope he's having a better time uh, doing what he's doing right now than he would be listening to us. You know, my tweets, 
you know, I'm seeing a lot of tweets here, but you know, one of them here is uh, what was the tweet? I have a lot of uh, MX unexplained podcasts to catch up on, so I'll use this hole in my podcast time wisely. The same guy who was bitching because I came on this show. Oh, I'm so I'm so offended because there's a host or a guest who's coming on Banal's show tonight that I don't agree with, and and so I can't be challenged. I can't be I can't be triggered. I got to go and listen to something else, but. You know, if I hear about this again from this individual, it's going to be because he couldn't resist himself and he had to come and listen again. So, hey, if you're there before you get burned again, just understand I hear you. I feel you. And and it's okay if you don't agree with things I say. Or anybody listening right now, if that individual didn't eventually come back because Micah Hanks was so horrible he couldn't listen to it. I really care about what people think, but I don't care enough about people's attitude about me that I worry about that. I do find it concerning when somebody feels that something that someone else says makes them so uncomfortable or challenges their views on things so much that they will not listen to that podcast. You feel so challenged by what you've heard that you won't even approach that subject. So for me, you know, I think that I, I do, I, I try to challenge myself and I do kind of see myself moving a little away from, from this, this community. But I think that there are certain shows like this and there are certain subjects like UFOs that I will also always come back to, but I'm not going to do it the same old way that so many people do. Uh, and if if I'm branded goofy for being somebody who does that and says those kind of things, well, you know, well, you can call me goofy, you can call me you know, credulous. Or you I've can never call heard me anyone call you goofy. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know. You know, describe me as goofy. I'm well, goofy. Everybody, you know, I, I like being goofy sometimes. You know, one of the things that people like about podcasts, again, Joe Rogan, he's a comedian part of the time when he's not hosting what I think has, in my opinion, become one of the best podcasts in. I have come to appreciate it as being one of the best podcasts, period. Not only podcasts of its kind, but you got to also keep in mind the diversity of the guests. He doesn't really just do like the weird stuff. He doesn't just do politics. He doesn't just do any one thing. He will get celebrities on. He'll talk about science. He'll talk about the unexplained. He'll talk. Dude, he is so diverse, and very few podcasters can do what Joe Rogan does, let alone do it as well as he does, and be able to go toe to toe with almost anybody on any subject but always be friendly and, and always sound like he's just right there with him. Dude, the guy has talent. you got to get on this guy's incredible. show. He sounds like you're <laughs> oh, I would I want, to go have, on have you Joe contacted Rick. him and tried to be on a show? I don't even listen to his show, so much like the – and this is not a diss on him. I hate to I, I hate to draw the comparison, but I, 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 I this is some media I don't consume. Like the Ancient Aliens, I, I don't really listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. So, uh, But I'm hearing okay. good things about it, so maybe I'll start. But you should try, try well, to get on his show, dude. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. My, my um, the truth though is, I see. I never try to go on a show. That's my thing, though. The, the, the truth true. is, I never really asked to be on any shows either. So you just let them come exactly. to you. Yeah. I yeah. I I back. You know, when I was younger, I'd maybe pitch to people and be like, Yeah, you know, man, I'd love to, you know, be on your show. And, I, and again, you know, nine times out of ten, what happens is when you try and pitch, you know, Hey, I'm a such and such author of so many books and blah 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 blah, and I do this and that. And those people never get back with you, you know. Uh, and then I get to a certain point after years and years of just saying, you know, fuck all this. I'm just going to be who I am. I'm going to talk about what interests me. You know, I used to for the longest time also would never, ever, ever drop an F-bomb like you just heard. And and what changed, again, was I'm not trying to sound more like uh, Joe Rogan or whoever because he'll do that from time to time. Um, and I don't do it on my own podcast. I will say that because on my own podcast, it's, I, I, I know it to be a very family-friendly atmosphere and I have parents who write in and say I really appreciate the fact that you keep it clean and I'll always keep Grayley and Report clean but man you know if I'm on a show like this with you and I have a host who is using I've been you know, speaking a lot freely, yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, and, and I'm telling you, obviously there's an atmosphere for it, and I want not to try and fit in. I want merely to say whatever's on my mind and be completely honest and real. That's a good podcast. And again, that's what's great about Joe and Mary, very, very few other podcasts. But yes, truly, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, yours is one of them. It's very real, very unfiltered, and there's very real discussion. It's not a bunch of scripted junk. And so be who you are. Um, drink as much tea as you want if you're like me and, and, and get all you know geared up and ready to go and just say what's really on your mind because that's what is beautiful about the podcast. That's what differentiates it from this reality TV. What a great paradox. We call that reality TV, and there's nothing realistic about it at all. Nothing. Right. It's so like oh, lavishly oh, overproduced and everything, and the stuff we do is fairly raw. We're just making audio files, yeah. man. <laughs> like we're, you know, we're as basic as the shit that was out there, like in the twenties or whenever, whenever they managed to first record sound. It's like it's as basic a, a form of communication as you can conjure. But it, that's what's beautiful about it, Benal. Again, yeah. you know, a yeah. couple of guys, a couple of microphones, roll tape, let's go. And 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 that people say people keep trying to analyze podcasts. They're like, why is this so popular? How has this and, – and, and I have, you know, again, my good pal Jason Pentrail, who I've, I'm working with on a lot of projects right now and uh, some stuff I don't talk about very much uh, publicly yet, but you'll, of course, hear about it plenty in the, in the future. But, you know, also uh, I've got to point out that this guy is like an intellectual brother to me and, uh, you know, someone who's one of these rare individuals who comes along and is able to educate me about a lot of facets of science, history, archaeology, and things, and has really in, in many ways become a, a, an incredible mentor to me. Which is funny because when you're talking about, you know, kind of leaving the – what would happen if you got out of this community and went on to do different things? And that's exactly what he and I were talking about earlier. And, yeah, that's kind of, I think, an inevitability because, yes, my ideas evolve and change, and I find different interests with time, and many of us do. I do see so many, like, UFO researchers and people that they found their little niche, and they get stuck in that rut. And it's okay. I'm not telling anybody they can't make a living doing what they do, but unfortunately, I see a lot of – people in this community who it's more about, well, what will my next book be about? Because I got to get another book out because I've got to be the guy who has a lot of books, whether that be for financial reasons. I mean, again, I've found that if you're in this community and you're writing books and trying to sell them, you're probably not making a huge living. If you know, there, there are a lot of things you could do. Yeah. It's very different for money. Yeah. There are a lot of things that would make you more money than writing books about UFOs and things like that. And so that's why I laugh when people say, you just do this. You just write books just because you know you'll make money. Uh-huh. God, yeah. I know the tens of dollars that I make selling UFO books. Now, I write about the subjects that I find interesting, and I write what I what uh, what I believe about those subjects. Um, you know, and, I, and my beliefs and my attitudes have changed greatly uh, since, you know, I mean, within the last two years. I can look at books that I wrote as recently as three or four years ago, and I find that maybe half of what I wrote, uh, I may not say I disagree with, but I definitely have changed my views about a lot of those those subjects. And if you're not growing and evolving, changing and learning, what good are you? Or what good is life if it's not throwing new experiences at us? You know, and there's some great venerable researchers in the UFO community who have, for the last 40 years, given the same lecture every weekend. You know, they talk about the same subjects. They hit the same talking points. And every time they go on a podcast, they're talking about the same subject and offering the same views and the same historical fact about that subject. They really kind of unfortunately have become the one-trick pony. And respected though they are for what they do, again, for me, life is about learning and experiencing new things and doing new things. And maybe, just maybe, we could also say that for the researcher who is too well-known for 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 redundancy 
um, we could come back at them and say that maybe the hosts who have interviewed them have failed in asking a diverse enough set of questions, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Are you talking about uh, Stan? Because <laughs> Stan gets the rap because no. of uh, – and I know that uh, – Stan is always sort of tagged as that, and people always complain when I have him on the show and stuff. And it's like to me, Stan's like the fucking Rolling Stones. He 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 he's a rock star. So to me, it's like I want to hear I want to hear "Give Me Shelter" and "Paint It Black." Um, That's a good. You know, it's weird. Like I that. love those songs. Every time, yeah, every time the songs come on, you want to hear them. Now I will say this about Stanton though: uh, Stanton does. Uh, I don't know if redundancy is the thing. See, I've never had that problem with Stan because when I talk to Stan, I'm like Stan. Did you know Alan Henry? Oh, did I know him? I, I knew him very well. He was yeah, exactly. Cool that's the thing that people don't that, – exactly. That's what, that's what people don't realize about Stan, too. They they make that criticism, and then it's like, no, but if you talk to him, he's got an amazing wealth of insight and stories. It's just like no one wants him to come and give a fucking presentation on Alan Henry, and you know, no one wants to talk to him about what it was like going on all these TV shows in the 70s and shit. Like, But he has these insights. He just doesn't really – ever get the opportunity to share them in a lot of ways because people oh, want to hear exactly. the greatest this, hits. The, the discussions I've had with Stanton Friedman last February, I think I told you about this, you know, he and I were picked up at the airport for an event that we were doing up in Big Bear Lake, California, and we had to ride a couple of hours up uh, through, the, through the, the beautiful, the beautiful mountains of California. And so imagine we stopped for lunch in Riverside, and we, we talked about uh, – gosh, we talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about where the Philip J. Class might have had a government clearance and did some secret work. We talked about Alan Hendry. We talked about Einstein. I mean, Stanton Friedman is like an expert on Einstein, and nobody ever asks him about that. Like, dude, Stanton Friedman is such a – he has such an incredible wealth of knowledge, and there wasn't a single question about science that I could ask him. They said, well, I just really don't know anything about that. I mean, he he has so much – information. Well, the thing you've got to remember about Einstein, I mean, he just could, he could do it like nobody's business. But sitting there and talking with him in Riverside and having like pastrami sandwiches was one of the most incredible things I've ever ever experienced. And um, he is such an incredible, respectful, um, delightful person. But yeah, he is one of the most knowledgeable people that I think I've ever met. And in Stan's instance, no, what I really would say is that, uh, you know, if people find him to be redundant or anything like that, it's only because I think that there are a wealth of subjects that he is absolutely expert on, but everybody goes for the UFOs. I try to talk about, I don't talk about things that are not necessarily UFO related when I talk to him, but I ask him about people in the UFO community. And I ask right, him right. about like his interaction. Very specific details and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. That's how I, that's how I like, try to talk to him too. Yeah, yes, you do. You, you always, like, again, you know, bringing up the fake news thing. and ha- That was one of the most entertaining segments, getting his perspective on that when you, when you sent me that. Because, again, you ask him stuff that nobody asked him. And here's the other thing, too. I asked him about Carl Sagan, okay? Have you heard the Sagan story? Uh, I don't know. I don't, it, I, I don't recall a Sagan story, so let's, let's, what is the Sagan story? This is fascinating. I mean, he, he told me that he visited Carl Sagan uh, shortly before Sagan's death, Okay. And uh, that because he was giving a lecture up that way, and he was, and he said, and again, this is pretty well known. It, uh, I didn't know that they had actually known each other really well. And I'd asked him, I said, you know, I, I understand that you and Sagan were in the same uh, graduating class there at Chicago University. He says, oh, I knew him very well, you know. And so 
He says, in fact, shortly before his death, he said, I was invited over for tea at his house because I was speaking there in the area, and I go over to his house. And so he says they're sitting there and having, like, coffee, cake, and tea, and, that you know, Sagan told him, he says, look, you know, Stan, of course I realize that there's at least something to a minority of these UFO reports, but I can't be the person who goes out there publicly and acknowledges and says, hey, you know, guys, let's really pay more attention to these UFO kind of things. You know, what would happen to my credibility? What would happen to the grants and things that we get, you know, with regard to the actual science stuff we're involved with? So, but what... Stan intimated about his personal interactions with Carl Sagan, especially toward the end of his life, and inevitably, therefore, around the time that the demon-haunted world was on the shelves, or appearing on the shelves, uh, was that, yes, Sagan was absolutely the skeptic that you saw, but that there was a non-public side about those subjects that he would talk about, I guess, with old friends like Stanton Friedman. I see stories like that, but you never hear that on a podcast, do you? That Stanton Friedman went to Sagan's house and sat down and had like coffee cake and tea and talked about UFOs with the guy before he died. Come no. on. Well, <laughs> some shows. I, I, I'll, I'll have to bring it up to him when I have him on uh, over the holidays this yeah. time because I want to hear that story. But tell yeah, me, yeah. Me, I can't but I know what you mean about future. ufology in a sense. Uh, <laughs> I know you mean about I I know you mean just to circle back to the point about sort of the rote nature of this and how it's like every yeah it's not so much even that like you see people giving the same presentations because you do see that but it's like every sort of place has the same people too and it's like God love them I don't besmirch them for you know I don't whatever you know I don't I don't diss them for doing them but it's like there's not as much diversity of voices as you'd think uh, sometimes in the field. Too. So no, it's like that's, that's very true. And topics and things like that. So it's very, uh, you know, it's very, it's an odd, it's an odd field. Let's put it, <laughs> let's put it that well, way. It's, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's very, it is very much an odd field. And you know, I gotta say, I mean, I I think maybe this is indicative of the fact that I that I am moving further from UFO research. And I mean, and it's no secret. That um, if anything, especially if you listen to my Grayling Report podcast, some of the subjects that I've taken interest in um, as of late have been uh, some of the alleged anomalous disappearances and things, the likes of which are discussed in the Missing 411 books. And I'll very quickly and simply kind of um, explain what, do you have that. have a theory on this? My, they, I don't my have audience to... knows what the Missing 411 is. So what, do, you have a the- <laughs> do you have a theory or what, what's, what's your take on what? that? We don't need to give him the background. My, I know it. So. <laughs> okay, yeah. Everybody knows, everybody knows David and his books, and he's a great guy, and I've met David uh, uh, on one occasion, and I really like him. I think he's a nice guy, and I think that he has tried his best to be very uh, unbiased and not promote some sort of a narrative. He's always said, keep an open mind. He doesn't like it when people bring up Bigfoot, and I always really respect the, uh, respected that kind of thing from David. The problem, though, is that I think that a lot of, uh, despite trying to take very careful measures himself, and therefore I don't hold him in any way accountable for what I'm talking about here, but I think that his books have been so popular and good on him for that, but the pop- the popularity of those books have cr- kind of created this like 411 culture where people they seem to kind of think that all these strange disappearances, that there's some sort of a kind of a continuity between them, like there's one grand unified theory of strange disappearances and that there's some phenomena, UFOs, Bigfoot or whatever behind it all. And people, right, right. I mean, have gotten, they've gotten way out there and David has done his best not to promote that kind of thinking. So I really appreciate that, that he has taken that approach. Unfortunately though, no matter how careful you try to be, uh, you know, you can't, you can't make up the minds for your readership. And I think that many already have, and they really believe that some of the strangest stuff is really what's going on behind all this. And so uh, in my own 
interest in those cases. And I'll mention that I have a, a, a childhood friend who's a, a confirmed missing person right here in my hometown right now. I had a, another one last year, a fellow who turned up uh, dead in his vehicle at the bottom of a cliff. I mean, Jeez. so in the last – yeah, within the last year, I've actually had two friends that became missing persons and, uh, and have personally uh, been involved in investigations. Not Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that I – I've never worked in any kind of a official capacity with with law enforcement or anything like that. So let's just be very clear about that. I've never, uh, and this, if 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 anything, you would call my interest in my own research and any kind of contributions to be strictly amateur. So let's be very clear and let's not blow it into being anything of greater proportion than it actually is. I, you know, I'm strictly an amateur. Then again, I'll also mention that Sherlock Holmes was a very dedicated and professional amateur detective. Okay, a consulting detective, an amateur at very best. So, you know, that, and he was also fictional, but if, if the comparison is to be made, I think that there can be some very skilled amateurs is what I'm saying. That's right, a subject right, that's interesting. Right. And in equal measure, archaeology, I'm not a trained archaeologist, but I am a very serious archaeologist. I've taken it so seriously that in the state of South Carolina, I've recently obtained a hobby diver's license so that I can go into the waterways uh, in search of various archaeological um, finds, uh, ranging from nice. artifacts to other things. Yeah, and, and see, Treasures. again, I Treasures. think... Yeah. Well, you know, again, but treasures that have to be reported to the University of oh, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I yeah. which I don't mind, which I don't mind because usually they'll let you keep them for your personal collection. But I also have uh some very good friends there at the university and I don't have to typically I guess do things the way that the university system would have you do. I actually know people I could take them directly to the university and do it within their protocol but go directly to the professors that I know and say we have something that you would want to look at here and I can arrange a visit. Uh, and that's as a result of, uh, you know, again, associations that uh, that I have in the archaeological community. That doesn't make me an archaeologist, but what we call that in archaeology would be an avocationalist. I have a problem with people who don't actually have any kind of field training, have never done investigations or, or excavations or anything, have never uh, done any actual, uh, uh, you know, had any any uh, uh, training in, in school, have not obtained a, a uh, you know, uh, a uh, at very least a bachelor's degree, but I mean, ideally you'd want to try and get like a doctorate or something along those lines, you know, have your PhD. But then again, a bachelor's degree is better than nothing. But people who don't actually have any kind of degree and yet go around on television shows and things and call themselves uh, archaeologists, I would call you an avocationalist. Uh, yeah. And that's really like what Bill I'm the again, science, uh, He doesn't have any credentials, really. Well, he has, so. he has a. I think he has a, I think he has a bachelor's degree in um in chemistry and I think that at one time he did hold a secret clearance. So he does have something but he's not an actual like doctor or anything like that. And frankly, I mean to have had some uh science experience and some lab time is more important than not having any at all and then going around calling yourself something that you're not. Uh I I'm okay with Bill calling himself a science guy, but you know if he ever calls himself Dr. Bill, I'm, you know I'm going to call bullshit. <laughs> So, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not any kind of trained professional. I have a lot of training. I've got a lot of field time in various things. And with archaeology, I aspire to be an avocationalist. And so let's call things what they are. Yeah, um, just but to be see, clear, he, studied, in, he, got a, he has a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. So oh, I guess okay. that's kind of a scientist in, the sense, in a sense. But I don't know. Does, this, does an engineer count as a scientist? I would say so. I would say you know there is a science yeah. to engineering. I would I also they say though that, that you know, Big Bang Theory a lot. I don't remember, but I think they <laughs> right. do. Well, the thing about Bill Bill Nye, I mean, he's worth talking about here in this context of all this too. Uh, have you watched his Netflix show or anything? 
No, no. I heard about some crazy rap that he did, and everyone like made fun of him because it was like uh, just really crazy and weird. But no, I haven't seen. Yeah, it's a good series. No, no. I think I think it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's I mean, awful, but all. It... <laughs> all right. Well, I don't know. I thought you were going to be like it's fascinating. So. No, no, yeah. no, no. I think I think I appreciate what Bill Nye tries to do, but I think that he is uh, the worst on delivery. I don't think he convincingly, again, brings people to the, oh, wow, we really need to take climate change seriously argument. I think that Bill Nye is a, a guy who tries to be funny and just comes across as being awkward. So he tries to use awkward as his as his medium, and that doesn't seem to work either because he can't convincingly be awkward. He seems and so I watched to me, one episode. But... He's very snarky. That's, again, the problem. You're not going to bring people to your side of the argument. You know, he, here's a guy who says that he thinks that people who disagree with the science as it relates to climate change uh, should be able to be punishable under law for having that opinion. And I'm thinking, well, so you, you might understand mechanical engineering, but you sure don't understand freedom of speech. Now, granted, do I agree with the, the climate denial stuff? No, I don't. I do think that the science is in, and I think that guys like Bill Nye do a terrible job conveying that to an unwilling public, uh, at least a faction of the public that is unwilling to accept scientific data. He is not effectively communicating that to people. He's just trying yeah. to be hip and cool, and he's got a new Netflix show that they hope is going to appeal to millennials, and I'm sorry I don't find anything about it appealing, and I am a millennial, so there you go. <laughs> It's yeah, well, it's weird. It's, it's yeah. There's a, there's a sort of like science is there's a science like uh, is cool. Uh, I don't know meme mindset. It's in the zeitgeist. You know what I mean? It's like science. Science is cool. It's in the zeitgeist. It's very uh, it's very it's part of this new culture. You know where comic books and everything are popular and science is cool. The paranormal likes to. It's still like the redheaded stepchild of the uh, <laughs> of of the of the fringe fandoms, but um, you know, well, they're they're having a show. They're making a comedy, a sitcom like version of the X Files for next season on Fox. So it's funny you're seeing the really? paranormal get into that realm too now. Yeah, and there's already one about an alien abduction group uh, that's on TBS. You should watch that show. It's excellent, actually. It's really well. It's well, it seems well researched. Like it seems what like a genuine uh, people of Earth. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've actually heard about that. My friend uh, Tiffany yeah, Mack actually. Yeah, she, she mentioned people of Earth, and I had no idea what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really, uh, it's really good. Um, yeah, and very well researched. Well, we could talk all yeah, night, we, dude, but I should probably wrap it up because. Uh, I'm getting tired, and I know you're getting tired. Well, I don't know if you're getting tired or not, but I know I'm getting tired, so I'm going to assume you are too. <laughs> well, after a good two and a half hours, man, you know, I mean, and then a four-hour monitoring of the Joe Rogan podcast before that, yeah, we we can wrap up anytime you're ready. Yeah, now yeah. is that time. Let's make it happen, brother. <laughs> I thought that when I asked. I, I remembered that after I asked you. I'm like, oh, shit, this dude just watched four hour, like a four-hour <laughs> podcast. He doesn't want to. But well, I thank you very much, dude, for coming, uh, for doing the extra time, and for coming on the show, and 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 for everything over the years, man. It's been great, and uh, this isn't our last conversation, obviously. But uh, like I said earlier, it's been awesome to have you as part of uh, this journey that we've been on over the last ten years plus. No, certainly, something something tells me though, Benal, I think we're just scratching the surface. Let's hope so. Absolutely, get the plugs in. Where should people get? Uh, just GrelianReport.com, right? That's the hub. 
That's right. Yeah, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, report.com is the podcast, but you can find some information about me also at uh, micahanks.com. That's my name.com. Uh, you know, if you want to learn about my podcasting adventures and, and, in fact, you know, the book that I wrote about that for people who want to become a podcaster, you, know, you can check out maverickpodcasting.org. And, uh, and then there'll be some other uh, web-based uh, things going on here in the next few months. So I think by the next time you and I catch up and chat, I'll have a whole new slew of interesting things to tell people about. So, But, yeah, check me out online and, and definitely follow me at Micah Hanks on Twitter. That way we can interact and, and you can follow my space-time ramblings there in the Twitterverse. There you go. Yeah, I've been getting into Twitter a lot over the last few weeks. I actually like it a lot now. It's 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 a it's a real safe haven from the fucking crazy political part of Facebook. Facebook's gotten way too political. At least on Twitter, it's a little still super political, but it's like I'm not bombarded. Um. Anyway, yeah, that's that's my own old yeah. old old lady old lady rant. Anyways, <laughs> so thanks again, <laughs> man, and uh, we'll be talking soon. And uh, have a great summer. Yeah, you too, most definitely. And all you banal of America followers out there, you keep supporting this guy. We want to hear from him for another 12 years if we can, okay? <laughs> oh, man, thank you very much. Have a great night, buddy. See you, pal. All right, folks, there you go. That was Micah Hanks. Big thanks to him. Uh, like I said, uh, I didn't even it didn't even dawn on me that he was uh, that he was going to be able to do the extra half hour. Oh, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. It didn't even dawn on me that he um, – that he had just listened to that four-hour podcast until um, <laughs> and, until I had already sort of roped him into the extra half hour. So it was uh, it was really awful nice of him to do that, and uh, I, I salute his his endurance because I'm getting pretty tired. So we're gonna wrap up uh, the show here. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Thanks to all the folks who tuned in on the live show. Thanks to the folks in the chat room. It was hopping in there tonight. Uh, lots of great conversation. Lots of people throwing questions at me, but I didn't really feel like reading questions out of the chat room tonight or uh, taking calls because it was just sort of a chill jam session. And sometimes, you know, you don't want to, like, infuse outside influences into the jam session. It throws things off, I find. Um, so sorry to the folks who threw questions at me, but, um, you know, that's how uh, the cookie crumbles. Next week on the show, it's Bigfoot Portal 2 with Adam Davies, who probably hates me because I keep Bigfoot Portal. Uh, we're going to revisit this story. i got to go back and listen to that episode again and uh, refresh myself. And you all should, too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it out on the tweets and the uh, Facebook uh, this week, maybe this weekend. And people should check that out. We'll all refresh ourselves on the Bigfoot Portal story. And then we'll jump back into it with Adam Davies, uh, a year and a half later, and find out what he's been up to, and it's it's pretty amazing. As I said, I was out for drinks with him in San Diego about a month ago, and a lot of drinks, a lot of laughs. Met his lovely wife Nadia. Um, had some fantastic Mexican food at a great place. This like outdoor, oh, just awesome. Uh, and he's been up to some crazy stuff since then. And there was a whole weird synchronicity. Oh, we're going to get into it all next week. It's awesome. It really is awesome. Um, and I'm getting excited right now because I want to tell these stories, but I want, I want Adam to be on the show. <laughs> so that will be next Tuesday, May 23rd at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, live. Uh, we're getting better about putting the links up and stuff. 
If you can't find us, just just get to the website. If you know we're going to be on at 10 o'clock next week, uh, May 23rd, just get to the website an hour before the show, and it will definitely be updated by then. But I'm trying to get better at sort of getting into a schedule of updating the website because we've uh, got a good little run going here, and we've got guests booked out uh, you know, through the next few weeks. I'd like to at least get to 10 weeks straight maybe before I take a break, but... I don't want to get ahead of myself. Next week's the fourth one in a row, and we're chugging along, as I said earlier. So thanks to all the folks who uh, have been joining us on the revival that is Season 10, the end of the beginning. And uh, I guess that's it. You'll be hearing from me next week on the program. No weird uh, background sounds tonight, thank goodness. No creaky no creaky sounds that I can tell. But if anyone... <laughs> anyone hears any, let me know. No people doing dishes, so the uh, the ghost dish people have thankfully uh, left our presence. And, I, and on that ridiculous note, I'll be talking to you next week with Adam Davies, Bigfoot Portal 2. Uh, I expect we're going to get our minds blown all over again, so uh, talk to you next week, folks.